Welcome back to the Film 89 podcast. This is episode 89. I'm Sky. I'm Richard. And returning a whole year on after our Fellowship of the Ring episode are two stout, hardy gentlemen, swords and axes in hand. They need no detailed introduction as to who they are, as by now they're both familiar voices to our listeners. It is, of course, Adam Rakoff and Bill Scurry. Gentlemen, welcome back. And can you believe how quickly that last year has flown? Yeah, it went it, right by, it man. Has. But you know, but here's the thing: the old world will burn in the fires of industry. Forests <laughs> will fall. Uh, well, thanks for having us back. You know, a year. It's just it seemed like so far off, isn't it? When we wrapped up the fellowship episode, and here we are now. And and isn't the world in such a better position oh. than this time last year? <laughs> Both yes, no, and definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> So, gentlemen, without further ado, are you ready to take the plunge into The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? Yes, sir. Yes. Extended edition. Of course. Then let's do this. Blimey, you fools! Gentlemen, The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, the second film in Peter Jackson's colossal trilogy. We did, you know, pretty much most of the heavy lifting in the Fellowship episode where we discussed the inception of the trilogy and much of the behind the scenes, you know, making of stuff, which kind of does free us up and allow us to dive headlong into the second film. But before we do, are there any particularly memorable experiences that any of you want to share regarding the first time you saw this film? I'll I'll just say that it was one of the first movies I saw with my now wife. So we went to the theater to see it, and it was a great experience. We had not met when the first film came out, and so we got to see this one together, and it was a lot of fun. As somebody who has not read uh, a word of Tolkien other than The Hobbit, which was, and I probably did so 10 years before this movie came out, I was still in awe of what had happened with Lord of the Rings, uh, the Fellowship of the Rings, um, not being prepared for Peter Jackson upping the game on the second one. And I think that uh, maybe me, like other people, got a little bit of uh, an an unfair um, estimation of what computer generation was going to be able to do for uh, for the industry. Uh, You know, we'll we'll get to all this later on, but uh, having my hair blown back by what Andy Serkis did uh, with the performance and what Weta Digital did with mocap. I mean, this was 2002, and we just thought the future was then. We kind of haven't really matched it that much, but uh, yeah, it was sort of an amazing benchmark so early into the computer generation uh, revolution. 
Yeah, I just remember uh, being, I, I was either opening night or, or, or the second night. Uh, it was again a, a visit to the great city of Swansea for a, a decent cinema, myself and uh, my then girlfriend, now wife. And it was it was we, as soon as we could possibly see it, we'd watch, rewatch The Fellowship a couple of times in, in prep, just but pure, pure excitement. Excitement that um, only, uh, on, only on a few previous occasions and occasions since have I felt the same level of excitement. The, the you know the various Star Wars films, although less so recently, uh, Avengers, Endgame, Avengers, uh, um, Infinity War, uh, and and this the, the the anticipation was absolutely palpable, and we were just so excited going in, and not in the slightest bit disappointed coming out. Yeah, I think for me, going back to what I was saying uh, in the first episode, The Fellowship, about the fact that, you know, having sort of been made to like that film by way of attrition, it, it was at this point, you know, December 2002, just following the release of the extended edition of Fellowship, where I really kind of started to have a bit of a turning point with these films and really did kind of start to fall hard for them. And, you know, the, the theatrical release of The Two Towers, I was just absolutely gasping for the film at this point but i think the impact of the film didn't hit me properly if i'm being honest until the following november when the extended edition of this film was released because as much as i really did enjoy the two towers uh, in the cinema i think again it was kind of like i was expecting it to blow my socks off and in some ways it did but there was always that thing of I've not seen the complete story. And I think pretty early on, it was hinted at that, again, there was even more footage that had kind of been left out of this version. So I was really pleased with it, really impressed with it. But, you know, my my proper journey with this film had kind of only just begun. Yeah, I, I would add to that. I would say that for me, it wasn't until I think 2006 when I had the entire extended edition set on DVD that I rewatched them all back to back. And that's when I think I really realized the entirety of how of the series and how great it was. It really just it, the the individual films, as great as they are, don't stand up to the the whole that they create. Oh yeah, absolutely. The, the extended editions were released sort of a year following, weren't they? So the extended edition right. of Fellowship. Yeah, because the Fellowship was released theatrically, I think uh, December nineteenth, two thousand and one, and then the extended edition of that I think was released. Uh, mid to late November 2002 so it was kind of about three to four weeks before the so excited about the extended and, and all of the um, appendices and everything that went on with it um, yeah. in the back of my mind I thought I couldn't quite remember when when they were that makes sense now that they were released co- consecutively then alongside the, the, the current film yeah really clever marketing really because releasing the extended edition just before the theatrical edition of the following film kind of you know again it kind of reignites interest in the forthcoming film yeah definitely well, well, think about the, um, you know, that was the, the prime time of DVD sales where that was an entire market that started, Jesus, what year, 96, 97, 98, where the DVD became just sort of like a consumer item, totally redefining what home video was from the VHS tape. But this was the golden age of that. This was smack dab in the middle of it. And, it, you know, it would go on for a long time. But I can't think of any other film and or film series that was in itself redefined by the establishment of director's cuts. Don't get me wrong. There were plenty of director's cuts. One of the big, um, in, you know, the big enticements of DVD uh, in 1998 or 1999, I bought Aliens because it had all those extra scenes that I saw on the TV cut in the late 80s and the early 90s. You know, you, you could get bits and pieces of the story, but you didn't really feel like it redefined it. It just fleshed it out and you saw what could have been. You know, every single time that they published a different edition of these three movies, 
it became the official edition in the eyes of most people, which I think is amazing. And I'm not sure that's been uh, matched ever again. It was like yeah. this this period of time. It was as if it was they'd re- looked inside my brain and asked, "What do you want?" Because the, this just fed straight into everything that I wanted. I wanted to know the ins and outs of every element of the making of these films, and this just this was like catnip. And, but and, Richie, you had a, you were buying a lot of you were buying DVDs at this point. Like you had a habit, just the rest of us, right? I mean, that was kind of a, yeah, a real yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And 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 I couldn't and I I was going through in my completest kind of um behavior that I still have to this day. I wanted to see which whichever film I was buying. I wanted the obviously the most complete version of it, but the one with the most extras, with the most information, and I would watch every solitary second of those extras because it was just I just you know I was like Johnny Five I needed input um and it was <laughs> it, it was I find it really disappointing certainly over the last 10 years what with the advent of blu-ray and, and 4k and longer than 10 years but in the in the last sort of 15 years then with the ability to to hold so much more information on these discs and the 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 appetite possibly is is diminished and we're not seeing that as whilst everything goes towards streaming we're seeing far less in the way of documentaries and, and making of it's, it's a real shame yeah, far less effort has been put into it, isn't it? Like you say, this was the golden age, Bill, and it did continue for a long time. And, you know, there's plenty of boutique labels now which are still putting a tremendous effort into special features and, you know, behind-the-scenes stuff. And essentially, these these discs are like a film school. Yeah. And there's very little that you will, will, will not learn about the making of these films, the inception of these films, you know, the, the experiences of everyone involved in making them by watching the films with the audio commentaries of which there's four per film and then the hours upon hours of appendices the, the special features the behind the scenes stuff you know it is very little stones stone is left unturned and yeah it it is sad that not every major release now comes with sort of that attention to detail put into the features but you know like you say rich this this was like catnip to me as well and this this was everything i wanted in in, in a physical release and you know what, what a time to be a, a lover of film so with this second film the, the studio initially they wanted another prologue to open the film but jackson and co resisted and the opening that they went with well I'm going to stand by what I said way back in episode four of this podcast when we discussed our favourite um, movie opening scenes. Do you remember that, Rich? Yeah. And and I declared the opening to The Two Towers as the, the greatest opening to a film that I'd ever seen. Now, the fact that Jackson and co chose to open film two with what is essentially a flashback to a key moment in, in film one, but to show us what we didn't see. Yeah. And instead of seeing Gandalf pulled into this cavernous abyss by the whip of the Balrog this time... We follow Gandalf down into this chasm. We see him and the Balrog fighting in free fall as the Balrog is bashed on the sides of the chasm. Gandalf grabs his fallen sword Glamdring, grabs hold of the Balrog, stabbing him and getting swatted away like a fly. Then, as this incredible choral music by Howard Shaw swells, we have this wide shot that looks to be maybe half a mile away as this flaming, tumbling speck in the darkness falls into this huge open cavern. We cut them back into close-up with them still fighting as they near this vast underground lake. And just as they hit the water, we cut the Frodo being jerked out of a dream. I mean, what a magnificently ballsy opening. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, and it, and it, it's expecting you to know. If, there's no need for recaps, you know. I know it, it, it's it's not. They could have wasted a huge amount of time in in recapping what had come before and reminding the audience. But essentially, it just it doesn't it doesn't waste a breath, does it? It just gets on with it. The story. This is a complete continuation of where we left off with, with the characters, and it's just straight into it. No, you know, no no hesitation at all. 
Yeah, and what a way to start with some incredible action to get things <laughs> going, to get your audience yeah. excited. But also in movie vocabulary, yeah, you know, we had plenty of Obi-Wan Kenobis and, and, you know, wise mentor figures who die in the first installment and come back. And so granted, that stuff is um, kind of in the fabric of action and mythic storytelling. But when you begin with Ian McKellen and, you know, and how valiant he is and, you know, what we saw of him sliding into the darkness was just the beginning of this titanic conflict. It gets paid off later on, but it also lets you know that we're not finished with Gandalf yet. And granted, that may be for the cheap seats. You know, that's loud for the people in the back. It does, in fact, set up Ian McKellen's return in the middle of the movie quite conveniently. Yeah, we, you know, we all knew he was going to return. I don't think, you know, aside from maybe casual viewers, no one was in any doubt that Gandalf was going to return. But the beauty of this opening is it showed us both what may have happened at this point on our first viewing and also it could have just been no this is just frodo's dream we don't know that any of this has happened at this point because the very next scene is frodo jerking out of his dream and or, or nightmare and, and it's just basically showing us frodo's anxieties of the fact that his mentor gandalf has gone now for the extended edition the film's title card is placed over a different scene than in the theatrical edition now this the same thing happened in the extended edition of Fellowship of the Ring, which again had quite a, a different opening with uh, you know different scenes moved around, and you know there, there are scenes in the theatrical version of Fellowship which are not in the extended edition because they were replaced with with alternate takes. But you know there's quite a bit of of new footage in you know the kind of I think the first fifteen or twenty minutes of, of the Two Towers, and very quickly. We catch up with Sam and Frodo. We quickly realise that if we hadn't already known from what we're told in the previous film, that they're being pursued by Gollum. But in the first few scenes, before the scene at night where Gollum appears, this was a mixture of shots done on the original shoot and then other shots which were done two years later as pickups. You just can't tell this at all. The makeup, the way that the, 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 the clothes are, you know, the, the, the level of, of weathering to them, the, the lighting, everything just fits completely perfectly. And I've, I've watched this scene having been told that fact I, do, I just can't see any scenes i can't see like a hair out of place and you know they, they were literally filmed two years apart yeah but at that point i mean no one left new zealand i mean maybe they went back to los angeles for holidays and stuff like that but they were in that camp mentality where everybody was locked into doing whatever the call sheet had for the day completely out of order you know, I mean, which brings up another weird point about this, exactly like you say, that we get to appreciate a second chapter of this move, of this saga so well done. But these guys were going out there, and it was up to script supervisors every single day to make sense of where they were in the story. I mean, every single wig had to be in place hair by hair. You know, the, the hobbit feet had to be placed, you know, exactly perfectly so that you don't get confused. And the extras, or whether it's Kieran Shaw or the little guys playing the hobbits in the long view and stuff like that, you know, we get to appreciate the fact that this is as great a middle section as they come in movies, but every single day must have been an absolute torturous slog in terms of continuity. But they killed it. Yeah, the script supervisors are really the unsung heroes <laughs> in films like this. Oh, God, yeah, especially when you have, you know, a, a shoot that is, it goes on as long as this one does, and, and so many. Right. You know, thousands of hours of footage are shot on so many different locations, you know, set at such a, a vast time apart in terms of the storytelling. Yeah, I, I've just, it baffles me. You this just, level of organization just, it baffles me. You cannot underestimate it, can you? You just, it's wild. Yeah. No doubt the script supervisor must have been a woman because men are knowing he was organized <laughs> enough just to, to manage something like this. So when he does finally pounce and he's fighting with Frodo and Sam, the, the interaction between 
these two actors and this CG creation of Gollum is just phenomenal. Now Andy Serkis was there on set in his motion capture gimp suit as they often called it, but somehow Weta Digital managed to overlay the CG Gollum onto him and it just looks remarkable. And this was at the absolute infancy of this technology. And instead of just giving us brief shots of it, they go full on. They do not hold back at all. And they basically give us stuff that we have effectively never seen before. Yeah, and it still holds up. I mean, it's even in 4K. I watched it for the first time in 4K. And yes, some CGI gets a little bit dated when you see some of the imperfections, but that's the same with any any classic movie that's been remastered in 4K. You're going to see imperfections in in you know makeup set design costumes all of it it's just part of what happens when you get into these higher resolutions but i think that if you watch this today right now you will believe that Gollum is a real character interacting with sam and frodo you will there's no oh there's a cg character it's absolutely Gollum, and he's there on the screen yeah yeah it's the quality of the performance i think it is it? yeah it's also the it's the care that what a digital put into you know they were doing it without a net it, they were inventing a technology that kind of hadn't been done to this degree before they put a lot of care and delectation into almost inventing a form of of um, performance that people would take shortcuts thereafter in many cases there are a lot of examples of this being replicated to some degree uh, but in most cases we're comparing this to quicker faster we don't have time let's get this in on our budget and you know we just don't have as many days as it would require in the shoot to do it correctly with all the stuff of putting actors in there you know it's the age of the tennis ball on a stick is what follows thereafter uh, and it just doesn't compare to what, what a digital did with andy circus yeah I, I agree i think it seems like whenever you have a breakthrough or watershed moment in visual effects especially with cgi whether it was the abyss t2 jurassic park these were films were essentially inventing technology as they as they filmed and this was the case as well with Gollum being the first computer generated main character on the screen it's so much it's like the quality and and care that's going into it they're not taking anything for granted so they're really putting everything they ha have into making these visual effects work as part of the storytelling and Bill as you said as you go forward in time it's like the studios take this all for granted and they just think oh this we'll do we'll fix that in post we'll add that later it'll be fine we'll make it work and audiences won't know the difference and we do we can tell and we can tell when they haven't really thought it through and they haven't really paid the attention or given the attention to those details that that the audiences i think today are very very good at picking up on yeah and i think as well as it's been mentioned, Andy Serkis's performance without which it just it just wouldn't work either. And and the sequences right. where Gollum is arguing with Smeagol, and the camera angles change to to have the perspective of Gollum and then the perspective of Smeagol, you you very much accept that it's two people arguing. The visual effects, the mocap clash with with Andy Serkis's performance, it is it is groundbreaking and and so impressive. Even twenty years later, it is so it's outstanding. It's the little things, Rich, isn't it? Like, um, do you know when he's um, he, he's, he's clamoring at Frodo trying to get the ring and he does that thing where his kind of bottom lip goes under his top teeth and he's kind of sucking and puffing his cheeks? Yeah. It's little little touches like that which, you know, the, the wetter animators took from Andy Serkis and then put into the digital Gollum model. It's, it's the movement of the eyebrows, the, fr the, the frown lines, the, the it is facial expressions and all the work that goes into, you know, those, the, those massive eyes 
that don't look like CGI's. They look, you know, you know, following this. I, I can't remember when when the Polar Express came out. In <laughs> I knew you were going to mention yeah. Polar Express. <laughs> yeah, Candy Valley. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, the Dead Eyes, wasn't it? There was the thing with the Dead Eyes, and they were really struggling. Well, you you look straight back to to Gollum, and and you, you know his eyes tell a thousand stories. They they're so believable as these big menacing slash vulnerable eyes. There's not a not a you say not a stone left unturned. They the the work that they did in bringing this character to life is is has not been matched. You know, let's re- let's remember that you know back in the uh, 30s, 40s, and 50s, Walt Disney's Nine Old Men. Um, you know, they were the key animators who built a lot of that great animation that came out of a studio between Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Bambi, so on and so forth. If you watch uh, the making ofs and a lot of the behind the scenes footage, as much as, as it was filmed back then, those animators uh, tables were filled with mirrors. One of the things they did was they based, you know, they were rotoscoping action on top of actors yeah. in a lot of cases, but they were basing human expressions on their own faces. They were puffing their cheeks yeah. out. They were looking like they were huffing and puffing. They were cocking their eyes, furrowing their brows. And this Andy Serkis, you know, the, the, the synthesis and the communion of what he did is really an old tradition when animators cared to do this. They were basing it on something very old. It's not that it had never been done before. It's it's a grand tradition. It's just that they gave new life to it here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then once we've caught up with uh, Frodo and Sam in their situation with uh, their newly found friend, then we cut to the other members of the Fellowship. And the, the amount of... <laughs> incredible aerial shots as Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli pursue the Urukai. All of these were done without the use of drones as we see far yeah, too yeah. often these days. Not that, not that drone shots stand up, but for me, I don't know, I, I look at a shot these days and I think, wow, oh no, actually, it's a drone shot. You think, how the hell did they do that? You think back to when we first saw that, that aerial shot of the taxi uh, being followed in Zodiac and the fact that they had to do it, well, mostly as, as a CG shot. But now you could just put a drone up and you could, if it was properly timed, you could create that shot for real pretty easily. But back when we're in the, you know, these these vast plains in, in New Zealand, these were done the hard way from a helicopter. It's, and it's so funny you say that about drones because that was, the, the, this sequence was, I was having the, the exact same thought process, how ingenious it, it was. And you would, you would, if you didn't know that drones didn't exist then or they were being used to that extent, you would be forgiven for thinking it was because it's such a fluid flowing um shots zooms out pans away it, the the mobility there you would you would think could it could only be reached using the modern techniques but the fact yeah. that it wasn't yeah. says again it's the the cinematography of it and richie what's even more hardcore is that anytime you see those guys running around vigo has got a busted foot man like he kicked that helmet and yeah. all, all those running scenes, it's like, I think Orlando Bloom was running around with a cracked rib, or maybe that was John Reese davies had a cracked rib. Like, they were really jacked up, and they still... Yeah. I mean, some of those are stuntman scenes, but a lot of those are the key actors doing those stunts, running around on busted limbs. Yeah. Not idly do the leaves of Lorien fall. That's, that's a lovely little line taken directly from the book as they find uh, Pippin's elven brooch. And then we meet, a bit further on, the first of many new characters, Aoma, at the Fords of Aizen, and this is a scene in the extended edition, as he finds Prince Theodred wounded and takes him home to Edoras, where we meet Eowyn, Grima Wormtongue, and King Theoden. Aoma, after confronting Grima, is then banished from Edoras. Now, Bill, let's talk about <laughs> Brad Dorif as Grima, one of your favourite actors and one that you've even done a video about on your YouTube channel. 
Yeah, let's talk about him. You know, first of all, uh, other than Sam, uh, uh, you know, being played by um, yeah, Sean Astin, uh, Brad Dourif is the only other American in this production uh, for the most part. I mean, you know, Vig- Viggo Mortensen passes as American, but he kind of isn't. He grew up in a bunch of places. So, I, you know, it was a real honor to be brought into this coterie of actors from all over the planet, mostly Anglophone countries. Uh, but Brad Dourif held his own. And, you know, you know, what Peter Jackson says of Brad Dourif is that he never <laughs> he never heard Brad Dourif. He heard the sort of, you know, the weird English accent he created for the role. He stayed in character the entire time because Brad Dourif needed to focus in on it. He, he didn't think he was good enough to be able to, you know, to throw it out during lunch get it back after lunch, you know, go get a cup of coffee. He stayed in it the entire time. So, you know, Peter Jackson always took that as a sign of his commitment to the role, but he was super flattered. I mean, he always wanted to work with um, Christopher Lee. In fact, if you look online, I recommend everybody do this, by the way. There's some convention footage of Duraf. He tells the story at least two or three occasions of uh, Christopher Lee throwing knives, talking about the war and talking about spy craft and all this stuff. And you can just tell that Duraf loved flying back and forth, shaved his eyebrows, I believe, two or three times for this production every time they flew him back and forth from Los Angeles to New Zealand. But he got a chance to do something here that he didn't in other places. It was... It was really like a victory lap for a lifetime, you know, achievement of performances in just about the best solid genre stuff you can imagine. What a name, Wormtongue. I mean, does any anyone in the film think that <laughs> he's not going to <laughs> be <laughs> the, yeah. the, the, uh, the quote-unquote bad guy? <laughs> what you say there, Bill, about the shaved eyebrows now, is the obvious things they do to make him just look a bit creepy, like the, um, the, the, the cloudy eyeball. But it was literally maybe the third or fourth viewing before I even realised that Brad Dorff had shaved his eyebrows off. But when you see it, you're just like... Mm. What a brilliant idea! It just it just works to kind of making him you know look like this this wretched character. But again, it's not even that simple because you still, to some degree, in this film and certainly in the way he meets his demise in the third film, you also feel a bit sorry for him, and you see the kind of man that maybe he once was and like the man that he could have been if it wasn't for you know the poisoning influence of Saruman. So Aragorn, Gimli, and Legolas then meet Aoma and and the banished writers of Rohan. The quality of the writing here is just immense. When Aoma says, look for your friends, but do not trust the hope. It has forsaken these lands. (laughs) When I say it, it sounds corny. But when Carl Urban delivers that line, and the way he delivers it so stoic and and kind of like, no, this place is pretty fucked, guys, you know. In fact, Middle-earth is pretty much a a world in decline, and and it's it's on the downward slope of of whatever greatness it it might have once had. And you do just get the sense of that, you know, throughout this film. I love it that Aoma has the decency to give these three strangers two of the horses of his fallen men, which obviously makes, you know, the rest of their journey a lot quicker because you know it does feel as if they're doing a hell of a lot of running and poor Gimli with his little legs trying to keep up with uh, Aragorn and Legolas yeah that's a great he has that great line I'm wasted on cross country we dwarves are natural sprinters very dangerous over short distances now as, as you've said Bill this is a well-worn on-set anecdote but when they find a pile of burnt Urukai and an Aragorn kicks that helmet and cries out Viggo Mortensen did break his toe as he did that so that cry was real yeah. and then like a total badass yeah like you say just carried on doing the, loads of aerial shots of him and Brett Beatty uh, you know, the, the stand-in for, for Gimli and, and Legolas yeah, just running across the countryside and he was doing it with a busted toe and Orlando Bloom had a he had, he had a, a cracked rib and I think Brett Beatty had some sort of injury as well but yeah, total badasses, total, what an amazing workman-like attitude they all had. 
See, not, I think this is where since, Tom Cruise got it from. Saying, not since <laughs> yeah. Predator, when everybody would wake up really early to like blast their uh, muscles before every <laughs> single day. Each they were all trying to outdo themselves. I think everybody had like a medal contest here too. Goddamn toxic masculinity, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I I think I said offline. Uh, I uh, I wish I was like those guys, but I'm probably closer to uh, Sean Astin and uh, Sam in real life. <laughs> I just want some taters. <laughs> and then Mary and Pippin escape into Fangorn Forest with uh, Grishnak chasing them, and uh, and are rescued by Treebeard. Now, everything that we see inside Fangorn is either a set or miniatures. So, just let's discuss the ends. Because way back in 1997, the earliest days of pre-production, Peter Jackson told Weta that he felt the most difficult character conceptually would be Treebeard. How do you think they pulled this off? Because I, I do recall at the time of the release of this film, there being some kind of question as to whether or not the Ents was something that would kind of come across as hokey and, and belonged in, a, in a, an adaptation. Bearing in mind that they had cut out characters like Tom Bombadil, and, and old, old Man Willow and other characters which they didn't feel would work on the big screen. Does Treebeard and the Ents work? I, I think they do. I, I do think that, you know, there is a little bit of Jim Henson about them. You know, there's reminiscent a bit of um, of sort of the, of Labyrinth and what have you. But I, on watching it on, on this occasion, I, I remember being possibly the only negative I could draw from any of the from the, from these films the, was the background. When, when, the, when Treebeard is carrying Mary and Pippin, I, I seem to remember focusing on the fact that clearly it was on clearly it was green screen it, you know it the, the background seemed to be different texture different it didn't seem to be the same and i was very aware of it which just goes to sort of spot we were then because it is actually a, it's, 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 it's wonderful really but watching it again now i focused on treebeard looking at treebeard's face and and then when you when you see the other the other end how how they've designed them with with the various different branches and 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 to to carve their faces and the different bows and everything they're lovely kind of um, designs I don't know what they else all, you'd yeah, want they all have I mean, their own personalities yeah completely and they're, and they're evident in their faces and I think ultimately what 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 do you want in a tree that comes to life because <laughs> right. you, you know they're, they're they're big they're big lumbering slow moving things aren't they so i think that they that they nailed it well you know the, the smartest thing they did i mean the, the thing is most people do think that these were created almost 100 cgi what they don't realize is that they just cast our friend moose madsen and didn't use any makeup whatsoever <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> that, that that is a revelation. I couldn't believe it, but I yeah, yeah, it. you wouldn't you wouldn't guess that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. For, for our listeners, Adam's basically found what looks to be a concept drawing of Treebeard that looks exactly like friend of the podcast Moose Matson. Yeah, I I joked with him offline. I said, you know, if they ever make a live action movie of the Two Towers, you can play Treebeard. And of course, this is a live action movie. But <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, to to answer my own question, I do understand people's concerns when you know it it was released that they were keeping Treebeard in and he was going to be a big part of this film. I think he works. And even when I'm watching him now, I know that it's John Reese davis doubling up, uh, doing pulling double duties and doing the voice. When I hear him talk, I don't think uh, it's, it's just Gimli with a slightly different voice. I, I never think that. He's a completely fully formed character. And even though his face is CG, it kind of fools that kind of good eye that I've got for bad CG. And sometimes I just think, is it just a really complex model that they made because it, it just it's got a, a texture to it and i think the fact that there's kind of so much visible detail on the bark and i think the sound effects help as well and and the foley and the sound design the fact that when he's talking and moving it feels like kind of 
branches being bent and twisted. Yeah, and creaking. It's just a whole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a whole package of, of a character that you shouldn't believe, that you shouldn't be anything that we've got any sort of frame of reference for. And I do think it works. And as we'll come to later, I think there is a strong argument that much of what Treebeard represents was one of the more personal messages that Tolkien was trying to get across in the books. Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. And I, I also think it works. I think that uh, one advantage that we have is that this is happening in the middle of the second film. If we had somehow first been introduced to a character like this in the first half hour of the very first movie, it might have felt off, but we've had a movie in almost you know a quarter now to get to know Peter Jackson's version of Middle Earth and all of the, what that can mean, right? So we now know that there's gonna be all types of CG characters, all types of sort of fantastical things, and it helps us to just kind of accept and focus on the drama of what's happening, the words that are being spoken, and just go for it, kind of go with it, roll with it, and have a good time. Do you guys remember that uh, John Reese davies had teased at some convention around this time that he was apparently the first choice to voice uh, General Grievous for uh, George Lucas on episode um, uh, uh, two, uh, uh, Attack of the Clones? Grievous was Revenge of the Sith. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, right, right. But he was, uh, he announced that he says, oh, my next role coming up is going to be Grievous. And he says it's going to be, a, like, he was saying this as, like, an adjective. But apparently <laughs> he went in there to do it, and I think George Lucas shot those things outside of some, like, normal guild parameters. There was some technicality that kept uh, John Rhys-Davies from being able to do it. And he said, I can't work on this production because it's going to infringe on some kind of guild rule and that's why general grievous wound up being voiced by some ilm guy who did a fine job but you know at this point him doing double duty in this movie as a voiceover artist while he's also in principal photography didn't surprise me because he's just that good oh yeah so then Gollum leads frodo and sam out of emin wheel and into the dead marshes and all of this was filmed in the parking lot of an old disused factory now guys am i giving this film too much credit <laughs> Does it not completely sell this? Does it not look like a real environment and not a parking lot? Oh yeah, it's. I don't see any cars. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Frodo becomes mesmerized by the corpses in in the dead marshes, and he falls in, and he's pulled out by Gollum. Now, it's the quality of the CGI as a wet Gollum or digital Gollum interacts with Elijah Wood in this scene that is, for me, absolutely flawless. Peter Jackson has said that Gollum looks best when he's wet and lit by moonlight. Now, he's not lit by moonlight in this scene, but there are certain scenes where he doesn't look as good in others, and I think a lot of those scenes which are ones which were done towards the end of the production, but this one is completely flawless. It's the way he interacts with, with, with Frodo. There's just no scenes. If you go back to... You know, the very basic ways that the characters interacted with Jar Jar Binks and the Phantom Menace just three years before. This is just leaps and bounds <laughs> yeah. beyond, beyond that. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's a great scene. The, these corpses that we see in the water, they, they have to be inspired by things that Tolkien saw in World War One, like the bodies of soldiers in flooded shell holes and trenches. You know, surely that, you know, Tolkien has said that there's no allegory in this film. So I don't, I don't buy it because I, I find that the films are full of allegory, certainly in relation to war and, you know, the, the, the price of war, you know, upon young men. I think, you know, these films are kind of rife with that sort of allegory. Yeah, he may, well, not, yeah, when you, uh, it may not be intentional, but it, it was coming through. <laughs> So, you know. well, I mean, when, when you get, through, I know we're jumping ahead, but when you get through to Helm's Deep and young young boys and, and old fathers are being sent off to fight, it's pretty, yeah. it's pretty clear there what he's saying, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the, the beauty of a felt fusing that kind of level of, again, Sky, you say that 
it is flawlessly done so much so that it just becomes part of the production. It's another actor on screen. You don't think of it as, as a special effect, as anything special. Mm. You know, but the melding of a parking lot with, you know, big green screens hitched up around it to make a, you know, vanishing point background. Uh, but, uh, you know, you bring up those corpses, the, the fact that they were using, like, latex maquettes in the water, that's Peter Jackson 101, you know, of, like, using physical dummies, using actual props on set uh, and making them as lifelike as possible you can go back to you know meet the feebles and and bad taste and brain damage he's been working with latex his entire career to make something incredibly realistic but the fusion of that with the fake swamp and the parking lot and Gollum, it's like the best of everything that this guy knows how to do oh yeah and this is what we get Gollum's line no birds to eat no crunchable birds <laughs> birds <is. laughs> And then there's an amazing extended scene um, at night, just before dawn, whilst Sam sleeps. Frodo is just lying there, stroking, you know, covered in the ring in his hand, and Gollum nearby is doing the same, but with an empty mm-hmm. hand. It's it's like as if there's like the ghost of the ring is still haunting him, especially now this nearby. And when Frodo calls him Smeagol, he refers to himself as me for the first time and says my name, not our name. And then we see the return of the ring race, this time flying. On, on a fell beast, which will be a considerable part of Sauron's offensive in the third film. But again, these, these extra little bits which are inserted, I can't imagine going back and watching the theatrical version again with these scenes missing, because they just add so much to, to fleshing out these characters. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think I've seen the theatrical cut since I saw it in the theater. I, sure. I, I, yep. I, I just yep. have never been able to go backwards, and other than to just make some comparisons and kind of see where changes were made. Mm. But beyond... You know, in terms of just pure viewing for my own enjoyment, I have to watch this cut, this this extended version. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So then we cut to Fangorn and Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli are met by another returning character. Now, the way they mix the voices and the faces of Ian McKellen and Christopher Lee here for Gandalf's return yes. until he re- reveals himself. What <laughs> I mean, like what an inspired yeah. touch. And you know it's it's done pretty seamlessly. You could you could pause it frame by frame, and you could one frame would be Christopher Lee's face and his eyes, and then the next one would be Ian McKellen's, and then the next one would be, would be a mixture of the two. You know it's just so cleverly done. And you know, I, I never thought for a second that it it, it was Saruman, because you know I, I by that point I knew what was coming. But but some some audiences did did not know who are new to the franchise, no, and, it, and so that's yeah. for them. I think this worked especially well. Yeah, and, and the ruse isn't for us, is it? The, the ruse is for Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli, and it works. And then additional little touches, like the fact that they draw, they draw their weapons and he kind of just heats them up so they you know they have to throw them to the floor. There's just little touches like that where magic is used in not in a kind of over-the-top and bombastic way, but it's used in a subtle and clever way. And then that line he says where he says, I am Saruman, or rather Saruman as he should have been. You know, it, it says so much about the fact that Gandalf's own mentor, in many ways, Saruman, about how Gandalf is kind of lamenting the turn that he went away from good, and the fact that Gandalf, now that he's given a second chance, is going to come and be the man, the the, the wizard, the, you know, the this powerful entity that Saruman should have been. You know, I I, yeah. I was sort of taking it as that perhaps we're seeing the very tail end, the last step of um, the Grey's transformation to the White. So you know, it, it might be a metaphor, it might be like a flim flam done for the point of you know motion picture audience but it also could have been watching gandalf almost like resolve himself from a fuzzy form it could be quite literally him solidifying and there's all the sort of echo noise of what those wizards what do they call the mayar 
Yeah, you know, the Maya. The Maya. Yeah, it's like the, the, perhaps him taking the final form of Gandalf the White has this effect where they are literally watching him almost like vibrate and crystallize back into a man. So he could sound like, you know, literally a, a combination of both until he resolves himself on being Gandalf. Because, you know, a couple of seconds later, he's a little confused. He says, oh, Gandalf, that's what they called me, right? It's yeah. almost like he's been reminded a little bit of, oh, yes, this past life is now re-entering his head as if it was uh, being injected by Dr. Mindbender's brainwave scanner. Yeah, and that whole way that he kind of describes the journey that he's taken since he, you know, he defeated the Balrog, it's very abstract and it's not very specific as to how time has passed for Gandalf, where he's been, what he's been experiencing, exactly what's happened, which, you know, I think it's good. It's a good example of, of show, don't tell, don't give us too much, leave more of it up to our imagination. Yeah, this and this scene actually <laughs> has... Uh, at, had added value for me this time around because, as I mentioned, I think in our last episode on the Fellowship, I started playing for the first time Dungeons and Dragons last year with our friend James Hancock, and now Bill, you're doing it too. You've just started. Yes, sir. Yep. And uh, I, last year I played a ranger, much like Aragorn. This year on our campaign, I'm playing a magic user or what will become a wizard. And I love when Aragorn says, "Do not let him speak." He will put a spell on us. We must be quick. <laughs> and the reason yeah. in gameplay, that's very true because a wizard has to be able to speak. And there are actually spells you can cast, such as a spell called silence, which will prevent any sound from being heard around a character. And then if you cast that on a spell caster, they cannot, they're basically worthless, weak, you know, weaklings. They can't do anything. You could just cut them down because that's their only ability is to cast spells. So it's just fun to see how a game like Dungeons and Dragons, the mechanics of the game really did take so much from Tolkien and what he established in this kind of this fantasy genre that he really created. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's just occurred to me now, um, you're saying about um, it, it being um, left the imagination, what, what Gandalf was up to in the time between becoming uh, leaving gray and becoming white it's, it's a small saving grace that disney don't own the rights to lord of the rings otherwise <laughs> we'd, be, I mean, we'd be having a disney plus series all about those those hallowed years there you go <laughs> filling in the blanks that we yeah, never needed filling in yeah so then smeagol leads uh, frodo and sam to the black gates and we see those elvish cloaks that gladriel gave them put to good use saving them from the easterlings but Smeagol pleads with them to allow him to show them another way into Mordor. Now, to give another idea as to how the mixed-up shooting schedule was, remember that scene at the end of Fellowship where Sean Astin cut his foot on grass running into the mm. river after Frodo towards sure. the end? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the Black Gates of Mordor scene was shot the very next day, so Sean Astin was in a great deal of pain. He was limping around, he had stitches in his foot, and, and he could barely walk properly. But again... Thinking of the fact that two moments in this story, which were essentially so far apart, were actually filmed one day after the other. It Again, the, the, the planning involved and, and the logistics just completely baffles me. Then Merry and Pippin, they wake up in, in a small clearing in Fangorn and we have the end draft scene. Now, what do you guys think of these additional scenes between Merry and Pippin that are scattered throughout the extended edition of The Two Towers? Because personally, I think that without these scenes in the second film we wouldn't care anywhere near as much about these two characters and where the story eventually takes them in the third film without these additional scenes yeah i, I agree and that's why i said earlier I, I feel like as a whole all three films in their extended forms they work so much better together not that there's anything wrong with them as individual movies but this as you're saying this all plays out it, it gives them, it develops them further in a way that they really got sort of shortchanged, I think, in the theatrical cut. 
And then Gandalf, Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli arrive at Edoras and we see first what has to be one of the greatest set locations I've ever seen in the film. The Golden Hall and the surrounding town which was built on just this magnificent outcrop of rock which they somehow managed to find when they were location scouting. Gandalf confronts Theoden, whose mind and body have been poisoned and aged by Saruman's magic. Now, this this transition between the, the aged Theoden and his restored self is just, it's absolutely seamless. Yeah. And I always thought that it was achieved by blending various stages of transitional makeup between the two extremes of the, the restored Theoden and the old poisoned one. Mm-hmm. But by all accounts, they just digitally blended and manipulated just three stages of makeup between the old Theoden, a transitional makeup stage, and the normal young Theoden. And it's just flawless. And we've, we've seen morphing technology. It, it started early on in the 80s. It was in Willow. It was in music videos. I think the Peter Gabriel one. And then we saw it then taken a step further in Terminator 2. But the way it's done here, and if you you know you watch that scene frame by frame, there's no obvious jumps between these stages. It is just a complete smooth transition from this old poisoned man to this much younger version. And again, it's just an example of the, the effects just being but absolutely fine. Sky, what it always makes it's I, I feel like we're looking at Lon Chaney Jr. turning into the Wolfman again. It's really not much yeah. different than something that was about seventy years older than this movie. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And then we get more great dialogue from Grima. He's a herald of woe. <laughs> Fucking. Uh, yeah, th- th- this this bitch be talking shit about you. <laughs> and then once Theoden is restored, we have the funeral of his son and Miranda Otto's beautiful uh, funeral song, something which was left out of the theatrical cut. Mm-hmm. And then, oh my God, the conversation that follows between Theoden and Gandalf. Alas, that these evil days should be mine. It's just so moving. And this is a character that we've only just met. And when he says... No parent should have to bury their child, and Bernard Hill breaks down. No, we've only just met him, and already I care about him, certainly. Yeah. And this isn't anything other than good old-fashioned writing coupled with the talents of a great actor. Now, oh, if only subsequent Middle-earth adaptations had a fraction of this sort of um, quality acting and writing. So then Theoden, he ignores the advice of Gandalf and Aragorn and decides to take his people to seek refuge in Helm's Deep, and, and Gandalf uh, leaves on... Shadowfax's horse to search for aid and then he says that line look to my coming at first light on the fifth day at dawn look to the east now the payoff we later get from this exchange you know it's all about setup and payoff yeah and and we'll come to that later I think it's worth noting at this point as well where when when we sort of properly in Rohan the the change in the score that comes in we, we talked about it a lot with the fellowship but again with this the different types of score and music that he used for the different locations in the different countries is so very with Rohan it's so it's so very Gaelic the music yeah it's more it, it's more Braveheart and it's Braveheart, less magical yeah. I think mm-hmm. in a way isn't it yeah it is it's beautiful music and it's, it's a testament to the again to uh, to Howard Shore and his uh, and his abilities this is all I think this oh, yeah. is also around the time when uh, there's a that quiet scene where Aragorn tries to kind of tame Brago, the wild horse, who I think is mm. was the king's son's horse. I believe that's what they yeah. were implying. Yeah, it was Theoden's yeah, horse, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And, uh, and it was just a nice little scene that just showed who Aragorn is. And yeah, it's just in that it was a king's horse, right? And that this was, this shows, again, it's a little more foreshadowing that he he is destined to be the king. By this point, um, mm. m- women want to be with Aragorn and men want to be Aragorn because he's tracking. <laughs> yeah, 
it's, it's oh yeah just, you know he yeah. is he is an absolute legend isn't he every single yeah. thing that he does is outstanding <laughs> oh he he won the hearts of, of millions of, of middle-aged yeah. women across the world <laughs> never a hair out of place yeah. never <laughs> no <laughs> so then Grima flees to Orthanc and briefs Saruman as the Theoden's new allies and this scene which is only in the extended edition was the this was the first thing they shot with Grima. And he's dabbing this cut he's got to the side of his mouth from where he was thrown down the steps. But they hadn't even shot that scene. But they had the planning and foresight to include the reference to the cut to his mm. mouth. Just, again, the, the level of detail here is just certain other studios who may now currently be adapting Tolkien's work take note. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I'm going to be saying about that, hopefully. And I'll just say I haven't yeah, seen well, any yeah. any of those certain other studios' productions, so I can't compare, but... Well, yeah, yeah we've, you know, John Arminio and I've already... We've already gone kind of down that, that, yeah, in, in, that Yeah, we've already covered that in a recent episode. We're not going to poison uh, this uh, celebration of the Two Towers by talking <laughs> about that, but everyone knows what we're talking about. So then, you've got the, the shots of the people of Rohan trekking to Helm's Deep. And I think I sent you guys a still of one of them that I'd found. You know, these are some of the best shots in a trilogy of this incredible New Zealand landscape. I mean, my God, is this not the greatest filming location ever devised? Uh, it's, it's, it is Middle Earth, isn't it? It is, it is yeah. Well, it, hadn't been, it really hadn't been used before. We hadn't seen the, the, the vast, you know, uh, plurality of landscapes there. And, you know, I mean, since this movie came out, I think it was last year, uh, Jane Campion did Power of the Dog there. And that was a that was a Western that was supposed to be set in Montana, but it was shot in uh, New Zealand, Auckland or Christchurch or back in the backcountry. You know, and it's like, I know that people really wanted to go all in on New Zealand that looks beautiful. But, I mean, to use New Zealand as a stand-in for someplace that doesn't look like New Zealand, I thought was really inappropriate. It didn't, it didn't come across to me as authentic. But... The way that this looks, it's almost like they invented a country we hadn't seen on film before using like anamorphic lenses. You know, it just soaking it in. I mean, we'd seen just about, we'd seen, Al, uh, what is it, Andalusia, Spain. You know, we've seen the Dolomite Mountains of Italy. We've seen, um, you know, all these other exotic landscapes used plunder decades earlier in film. But New Zealand was still sort of pristine and unseen until Andrew Lesney put his camera on it. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, you know, there's times when you see like Monument Valley in a film, and like when you see in Back to the Future Three, and you think, oh, this, you know, how many times I've seen that in the John Ford Western? You don't get that with these films. You're like, I've never seen these locations before. Where the hell was this film? <laughs> it is incredible. Is that CGI in the, in the background? And no, it's not. This is just a New Zealand landscape. Yeah, it feels like Earth, but also not Earth. And I think that's exactly what yeah. it, what they achieved by going to this locale is they were able to capture something that is real in camera but it also feels so foreign to the vast majority of the population on this planet because we've never been to this remote this kind of remote location to see this for with our own eyes yeah yeah and then uh, we cut back to we see Gat, we see Gollum scrambling for fish in a stream and, and Frodo snapping at Sam effectively because he's, he's sympathising with Gollum and the hold that the ring has on him. And then we have, and Rich, you've already you know, alluded to this scene, we, we have what is for me one of the all-time great scenes in all of cinema in terms of performance, effects, writing, editing and direction as Smeagol and his alter ego Gollum have this psychological battle and Smeagol tries and at least appears to be successful in ousting the Gollum persona. 
way it's edited and the fact that it starts off with you see the transitions as, as the as each bit of personality takes over but then it goes from Gollum is looking from left to right and Smeagol yep. is looking from right yep. to left at an angle and that then establishes the fact that for us these are two different personas even though they inhabit the same body by the end of the scene you're like I, I don't know. I can't even. I can't even put it into words how effective it is. But it. The first time I ever saw it, I was just. I was just stunned. It, it was. You know, Andy Circus's performance and the way that is just done so perfectly, and then captured in this CGI version of him. And having seen the raw dailies, the footage of him on location doing this performance, it. It's not just a simple matter of they created the face of Gollum and Smeagol in a computer. It is Andy Circus's expressions being transferred over into this digital and sky you know like you said i have in my notes here the 180 degree rule and you know you you take Mm -hmm. it for granted when we you know when you're shooting movies and one of the first things they tell you in film school is you know that's pretty much the only thing you have to make sure you're doing is the hundred is the 180 degree rule uh there's another editing rule in terms of camera distance from the 30 percent rule but that's different but you know like when you're watching something you know you almost have this impression 
that Gollum is leaping back and forth between camera angles and talking to himself on sort of like a, you know, looking left, looking right. But it's the camera that's jumping around, creating this, you know, the rhythm of a dialogue. And it's the editing doing the heavy lifting. It's where the camera position is doing the heavy lifting. You know, and it is all CG, which is amazing, too. Just using a, 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 a hoary old basic filmmaking technique to do so. Yeah. And then the next day, Smeagol, he brings Frodo and Sam some rabbits he's caught and killed, and Sam utters his now famous pronunciation, this is your favourite bit, Adam, of potatoes. Potatoes. <laughs> and then Fr- Frodo hears this, like, strange kind of bird call, and then we get our first look at one of the allies of Mordor in the Haradrim and their giant elephant-like mummerkill. They're then ambushed by archers, and we meet another new character, Faramir, played by David Wenham. Now, at this point, if you're watching it on DVD or Blu-ray, you'll have to swap the disc too, because of course this film is split over two discs, being as long as it is. And then after the break, we have more extended edition footage as we learn more about Eowyn, and she learns about Aragorn's heritage and the fact that he's one of the Dúnedain, a descendant of Númenor and gifted with long life, and is in fact 87 years old. And again, you don't need to know this, it's not essential to the plot, but when you do know it, and when you get to certain points later on in the film, and certainly in terms of his relationship projected forward with Arwen, this becomes wholly relevant, and you think, yeah, this is essential to the story, and and and, and uh, you know, full understanding of it. Well, and I think it does. I think it is important to know that he's he's 87 in the sense that look how good he is as a tracker, as a fighter, as a rider. He is a as a weathered individual but with a younger man's body that's why he's so good because he's he's had decades of experience to get to where he is now in his life and he just happens to be blessed with all you know with uh well good looks and <laughs> and uh and a young body yeah <laughs> So then, later that night, Aragorn has a flashback to when he and Eowyn were last together in Rivendell. Now, these are events which took place in the first film, but ones that we are only now seeing. It's a really clever way to keep Liv Tyler's character relevant and in the film. And after an exchange with Elrond, where he tells Aragorn that Arwen should go with her people and leave him, he goes to leave with the other members of the Fellowship, and Arwen sees him one more time before they part ways. And then, back in the present... The fleeing people of Rohan are set upon by the wargs. And then we have another amazing shot as Legolas, in slow motion, mounts Arrod, the horse that Gimli is riding at full pelt. And the genius of this is that it was never conceived until after they'd shot the footage and realised that they didn't have anything of Orlando Bloom mounting the horse because he'd, um, he'd broken his ribs and he wasn't particularly mobile. So on the fly, in post, they came up with a shot of a CG transition between the real Orlando Bloom stood there firing arrows and a CG version getting onto the horse. This is a rare occasion where they did indeed fix it in post. Yeah, yeah, true. <laughs> Successfully. Yeah. Now, the Wargs, they are, I think, one of the examples of the special effects not holding up that well. But the truth of it is they were never that great from the start because this was one particular area of the post-production where they just didn't have time to perfect the effects. And Peter Jackson has admitted that it was never planned with storyboards in the kind of intricate way that the other action scenes were. But in terms of what it does and, you know, the the, the way it's trying to convey this sense of chaos, it the scene still works. I just think we're comparing not so perfect special effects yeah. to perfect special effects that we've seen elsewhere and will see elsewhere in this film. Yeah, I think if you wa- if you like pulled this scene out and washed it by itself, it doesn't look so great. But in the body of the whole, again, it it's it's absolutely fine. 
you it everything that happens needs to happen we need to you know this is the scene where we lose aragorn right he gets pulled off the edge of a cliff and we don't know if he's yeah, alive yeah. or dead so it's a very important scene dramatically so it, it needs to occur you can't just cut this out but yeah it's it is uh, it does especially in 4k it's it some of these visuals are a little little less great <laughs> i'm trying to be trying to be as generous as i can but it, it doesn't it doesn't take away anything i don't think so then when Aragorn falls over the cliff into this river and is presumed dead, the people of Rohan then get to the fortress of Helm's Deep. The women and children get them into the caves. Saruman's arm will have grown long indeed if he thinks he can reach us here. Helm's Deep has one weakness. Its outer wall is solid rock, but for a small culvert at its base, which is little more than a drain. How can fire undo stone? What kind of device could bring down the wall? If the wall is breached, Helm's Deep will fall. Even if it is breached, it would take a number beyond reckoning. Thousands to storm the keep. Tens of thousands. But my lord, there is no such force. <laughs> where Grima is telling Saruman of Helm's Deep's one possible weakness. And then we see the full extent of the forces that Saruman has amassed. And have you noticed that when Grima sees like this 10,000 strong horde of Urukai, that there's this perfectly timed tear that rolls down his it, cheek? Yes, I have no. that in my notes. Oh. And you know what? Brad Dourif is such a fucking professional. I bet you he dropped that tear on command. That's how good he is. <laughs> Yeah, it says to me like, oh, what the fuck have I done? I didn't mean things to get it to escalate right. to this degree. Then uh, Mary, Pippin and Treebeard, they see the Urukai horde marching out of Isengard and then we cut back to a wounded Aragorn floating to shore, woken up by his horse Breakup. He then makes his way to Helm's Deep and we cut to Arwen telling Elrond that she's chosen to stay and not go with her people to Valinor. Elrond then tells her that even if they win out against Sauron, that she will outlive Aragorn and suffer a life of grief mourning him in one of the most beautiful scenes in the trilogy, which is, is capped off with the departure of the elves from Rivendell. And I just love how Howard Shaw's score is so somber. It's the Rivendell theme, but it, it's different. And then Elrond stays, and then we see Galadriel telling of a likely outcome should events carry on unfolding as they are. And again, brilliant way of keeping her character present and relevant to the story, but it also acts as an aid to someone who might be struggling to keep up with all of these separate story threads and groups of characters. Plus, it also asks a question as to how much 
the elves are going to be willing to help during the fight a question which obviously will be answered later on yeah then we cut back to Faramir and his men at Ithilien, where he discusses the risk posed to Gondor. Faramir speaks to Frodo and he asks them, oh, I love this line, where is your skulking friend, that Gango creature? He had an ill-favoured look. <laughs> I can't help but picture John Arminio when he says that. <laughs> John's going to fucking hate me for that. <laughs> Come on, John, you know you skulk around. I love you really, man. And then when Faramir learns of their mission, and we discover that Faramir is in fact Boromir's brother, and then Frodo and Sam learn that Boromir is dead. It's at that point that we have one of those extended edition scenes that fans were, I recall them being certainly most excited about, and there was a lot of internet chat when it was first revealed, the scene known as the Sons of the Steward, which is a flashback showing Boromir victorious at, at Osgiliath, having taken it back from the Orcs of Mordor, and giving this rousing victory speech and, and then celebrating with his brother Faramir only to be interrupted by their father, Denethor. Time for drinking! <laughs> Break out the ale! These men are thirsty! Yeah. Remember today, little brother. Today, life is good. <laughs> what? He's here. Where is Gondor's finest? Where is my firstborn? Father! <laughs> they say you vanquished the enemy almost single-handed. They exaggerate. <laughs> the victory belongs to Faramir also. But for Faramir, the city would still be standing. Were you not entrusted to protect it? I would have done, but our numbers were too few. Oh, too few. You let the enemy walk in and take it on a whim. Always you cast a poor reflection on me. That is not my intent. You give him no credit and yet he tries to do your will. He loves you, father. Do not trouble me with Faramir. I know his uses and they are few. We have more urgent things to speak of. Elrond of Rivendell has called a meeting. He will not say why, but I have guessed its purpose. It is rumored the weapon of the enemy has been found. The One Ring. Sildur's Bane. And it has fallen into the hands of the elves. Everyone will try to claim it. Men, dwarves, wizards, we cannot. 
cannot let that happen. This thing must come to Gondor. Gondor. It's dangerous, I know. Ever the ring will seek to corrupt the hearts of lesser men, but you, you are strong. And our need is great. It is our blood which is being spilled. Our people who are dying. Sauron is biding his time. He's massing fresh armies. He will return. And when he does, we will be powerless to stop him. You must go. Bring me back this mighty gift. Oh, no. My place is here with my people. Not in Rivendell. Would you deny your own father? There's need to go to Rivendell. Send me in his stead. You? <laughs> oh, I see. A chance for Faramir, Captain of Gondor, to show his quality. I think not. I trust this mission only to your brother. The one who will not fail me. This sequence, whilst again it's not essential to the core narrative, it shows this family dynamic between the three of them, which gives more depth to the motivation of Boromir in the first film, and it's obviously just, for me, great to see my favourite character from the films Boromir once more. Yeah, yeah. I, but it also, I, I, it's, it's important for Faramir, isn't it? It's important for us to understand Faramir's motivation and his and, and you know where he's coming from. Oh, yeah, yeah, I think his character is far less about this scene, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm with Richie on this one because, uh, you know, David Wenham is a great actor. You know, just one of these guys. Granted, after this, he wound up doing um, 300, uh, where he had to get completely buff, you know, just wear that little onesie, the, the, the underwear that they all wore in 300. I hadn't really seen much of him before this or after this. This was his shot, these these two movies that he's in. So, first of all, he's a, he's a stud. The guy's a pro. He's excellent. You know, he, he has that brotherly um, look. Him and Sean Bean do slot well next to each other as siblings. I like that quite a bit. That's that's a tough thing to pull off, and they got it. But also, uh, giving him more breadth and, and, you know, fleshing it out with uh, John Noble's Denethor, I mean, that only helps the movie. It, it this There's enough room inside this extended edition to create sort of a C, you know, like, a, I guess, a, beyond A, B, and C plots. This is like a J and F and H plot of, you know, but you want to see more of these guys. It actually gives weight to everything. You know, you, you see this this crippling, uh, you know, insecurity that he's dealing with because he's just been told it isn't good enough. And it fuels him later on going out and getting his ass kicked, you know? I mean, just because he has to try to, you know, fight for the love of his father, you know, and spoiler alert, the guy, you know, his damn father winds up dumping a quart of lamp oil on his head, you know, running off the side of the building. It's pretty insane, yeah. but it sets all this stuff up in a real beautiful way. And again, you know, David Wenham is such a stud, he can hold it up. Oh, yeah. And and the more and the more John Noble we can have, the better as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's so funny for me, uh, even though I've seen this countless times, I always forget that Sean Bean will, will appear again in, in a flashback. It's like, oh, no, no, he's dead. So he's, yeah. he's, he's only in the first movie. But there, you know, then it's just so nice to see his face again. Yeah. And and that that, yeah. that Gondor theme that will come hugely to the fore in Return of the King in one of the most spectacular scenes in the trilogy that was first introduced in the Council of Elrond scene, you know, really subtly and in the background when Boromir is talking about Gondor. 
we hear this huge kind of rousing, albeit short-lived kind of version of that music here. And the whole scene, again, like Rich, you say about catnip, this was catnip to me back in late 2002 when the extended edition first was released. And having lost my favourite character in the first film, just having more Boromir, and then this beautiful interaction with his brother and his father which leads into events in the first film it's just ah oh, you know the interweaving of the story and the, you know the way the the timeline is, is all over the place but in a really like well thought out well measured manner it's, it's just genius but it yeah it's it's super important because you know frodo brings up it's like this ring hit you know perverted the bro- the mind of your brother it's like you need to see more of sean bean to know that he was an upright guy there was really nothing untoward yeah. about him at all until the ring took his, you know, he the avarice was not his, the avarice was from without. And so that was effectively communicated to Faramir by what Frodo is saying. So seeing more of Sean Bean in both states, because all we saw him is when he was coveting that ring, you know, and granted, Faramir also says, we will use the weapon of the enemy against him. You know, you want to get to that point where you see the, the temptation, the poison inside the brain. And that's why having Sean Bean back is essential for that. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we have the rock and pool scene at my favorite middle earth location the the kind of moonlit uh, vale of athelion where frodo helps Faramir's men capture smeagol and then they, they they beat him up and it's here where Gollum sees his chance to reassert himself something that he does when smeagol is in trouble but before he's caught it's that cg image of a wet smeagol he's there with a fish in his mouth as frodo approaches peter jackson has said that Gollum's look best when he's lit by moonlight and he's right because here he just looks he just just blends in he looks real and at this point i forget yeah. totally that he's a cg character yeah agreed yeah it's great sam then tells frodo to escape but he confesses to sam that the ring has got too great a hold over him and if he tries to escape the sauron will find him faramir then discovers that frodo does in fact have the one ring but unlike his brother he's more able to resist it even though its pull is still considerable but then when he finds out osgiliath is under attack he chooses to, to take the ring to gondor Meanwhile, Aragorn arrives at Helm's Deep. Now, this is one of my favourite scenes in the entire trilogy, and Bernard Hill is just phenomenal here. Also, word to Howard Shaw's score and how subtly it undercuts the scene. Great host, you say? All Isengard is emptied. How many? 10,000 strong at least. 10,000? It is an army bred for a single purpose. To destroy the world of men. They will be here by nightfall. Let them come. I want every man and strong lad, able to bear arms, to be ready for battle by nightfall. We will cover the causeway and the gate from above. No army has ever breached the deeping wall or set foot inside the Hornburg. This is no rabble of mindless orcs. These are Urukai. Their armor is thick and their shields broad. I have fought many wars, Master Dwarf. I know how to defend my own keep. They will break upon this fortress like water on rock. Saruman's hordes will pillage and burn. We've seen it before. Cops can be re-sown. Homes rebuilt. Within these walls, 
We will outlast them. They do not come to destroy Rohan's crops or villages. They come to destroy his people, down to the last child. What would you have me do? Look at my men. Their courage hangs by a thread. If this is to be our end, then I would have them make such an end as to be worthy of remembrance. Send out riders, my lord. You must call for aid. And who will come? Elves. Dwarves. We are not so lucky in our friends as you. The old alliances are dead. Gondor will answer. Gondor? Where was Gondor when the Westfall fell? Where was Gondor when our enemies closed in around us? Where was Gondor? children into the cave. Need more time to lay provisions for a siege. There is no time. War is upon us. Secure the gate. Now, Bill, you recently mm. described on our chat where we were planning this episode, you described Bernard Hill as the MVP of the Two Towers. Yeah, certainly. You know, there is a type of Anglophone uh, credibility that we associate with royals in movies. I mean, that's just the generation we grew up in. I mean, that's how these roles were all cast with that sort of tradition. But I mean, Bernard Hill is a guy we'd seen bits and pieces of before. I mean, everybody knows him from a different thing, but it's always a smaller thing, whether you saw him as the captain of the Titanic in 97, he was strictly a supporting actor. Uh, I love him in The Bounty. He plays the steersman of The Bounty. Uh, I was the bosun. I forget who he plays in The Bounty, but he's incredible. And again, he is a third tier guy. You know, he just he's all shoulders. He's all deltoids. He's a thick, stocky Englishman. Gives that credibility. He's really evolved over time. But considering that's like we got to invent a new king and we need one fast. This guy has to be a tentpole of this movie that is filled with kings, ironically. You know, there's all these sorts of people connoting all this all this royalty. And he has to sell goodness. He has to sell wisdom. He has to sell charity. He has to sell uh, even more importantly, a guy who went out there with a sword in his hands and did the fighting himself maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, to establish this place. You know, he's got to look comfortable on a horse. There's a physical quality. Bernard Hill is that, uh, you know, lined face, bearded, sturdy Englishman, which they just, you know, whether it's Rada or RSC, just tends to present, you know, make these things by the drove. It was a real hallmark of English uh, theatrical training in the mid part of the century is creating guys like Bernard Hill. There's no shortage of them. The fact that we had a guy like Bernard Hill in the offing waiting to be plucked out from the bench and elevated to this incredible role to add this sturdy backbone is just lovely. And, you know, as much as I said, God, Boromir is, is my favorite character. I think once you take him out of the equation, I think the Theoden just steps in for me and takes his place. And you know, there's similarities between the two of them. The fact that he is racked with with grief and self doubt, and you know, he's 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 flawed. You know, he he's not this totally confident regal character. You know, there's depth to him, and you know, the way Bernard Hill plays him is just like you say, Bill, MVP of of, of this film, and and certainly going into the next one. And I mean, he's a king, but of 
of, in this case, like 300 men, you mm. know, <laughs> in a battle. It's not like he's commanding a, a, a giant army. He's got, and many of those men, as they say, are either a, a little too old or a little too yeah, young. Because, you know, it's a kingdom in decline, yeah. isn't it? Right. Right. You know, over over countless decades, you know, the, the poisoning influence of Sauron through Saruman and the likes of that have just stripped this kingdom of of, his, of the power it once had. And you do get that feeling with his character. Do you think he was conflicted with regards to whether or not they should be putting the call out for help? Because he seemed to be quite firm in that they would, you know, they would bring all, all the available hands to fight. But they would do it themselves. Yeah. But there, there's there's the look in his face when you think, is it pride? What is it that that, that is stopping him from from reaching? No, out? I think it is. Rich. I think um, it's pride. Is it, is he trying to make up for the fact. Yeah. But they simply haven't seen the numbers. The legions have never been as numerous as what's coming. He can't even fathom. Yeah. There's that many yeah. uh, monsters no. headed their way over land. Right. Yeah. And true. and they have the most offensive stronghold to which to you yeah. know, fight from. So you would if they had a, even a thousand troops. They're 300 against a thousand in that in Helm's Deep should be more than enough. And if, and if history is any you know judge, it, it has been. So yeah, they've never had anything. There's nothing to compare. Yeah. To. And I think also as much as you know Rohan has, has been you know under, under the kind of boot heel of Saruman and, and his you know growing army for a long time, Theoden is just unaware of the fact that Gondor have had similar problems you know coming from Mordor. And it's, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. why isn't anyone coming to help us? It's like, well, everyone across Middle-earth and like you know, has, has got their own battles. The dwarves have, and, you know, the elves have. There's a lot of infighting with the elves. They, they, you know, they're going through their own civil war stuff, which isn't in the film. But, yeah, it, it's just that thing of, no, we're going to stand our, on our own two feet. And, it, yeah, I think you're right, Rich. I think it is a pride thing. Also, this uh, extended cut does take great pains to uh, illustrate the loss of us Gilead. And it's got to be like a gigantic yeah. bruise to the reputation of Gondor that they blew it. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah, he yeah. would sit back in his little, you know, horse-drawn capital with the, you know, stocks, the stockade fence around it with Helm's Deep in the background saying, well, those guys certainly fucked that mm. up. I'm not going to yeah, call these idiots because the Gondor is as bad as we are. Gondor is a bunch of pretenders. They're a bunch of, you know, fools, bogus soldiers and uh, pretend lords. Yeah. And I think it's also just a, an overconfidence in Helm's Deep's ability to protect them, right? Because it has in in, in throughout history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then M- Merry and Pippin, they witness the Ent Moot, which is a gathering of the Ents, and they're going to discuss uh, what their role in this war is going to be. And then we cut back to Helm's Deep. Eowyn is to guard the women and children in the glittering caves, and, and that scene with the young lads and the old men being taken out to fight. Mm-hmm. Clearly another World oh, War One oh, analogy. Has to be. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. yeah. Yeah, and Aragorn and Legolas—they have this nice little heated exchange about the certain death of these, you know, old men and young boys, and the women and children are going to be facing. And then we have Theoden's poetic "Where is the horse and the rider?" recital, all cut to these slow motion scenes of the people of Helm's Deep arming up and the the Urukai marching towards them. And we get a little bit of we get a little commando esque scene of Aragorn getting ready yeah. for battle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I kind of want to recut that with the music with, with James uh, Horner's score from Commando. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that'd be so cool. <laughs> the whole tense build up to to the Battle of Helm's Deep is influenced by Zulu, which was always in the back of Peter Jackson's mind when he was filming the Two Towers. Mm. And you know that arming up scene, as you said, with Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli putting on their armor, and that great little line of Gimli's when he puts on that long chainmail. <laughs> it's a little tight across yeah. the chest. <laughs> <laughs> so fucking exactly. cool. Yeah, it's so well done. Yeah, so open. And I love Aragorn 
when he says, you know, show them no mercy for you will receive one. It's kind of like we're not we're not playing here. This is you, yeah. you, you are fighting for your life. Yeah, well, that's one of my favourite lines in the film, which he actually speaks in Elvish, doesn't yeah. he? Oh, brilliant. That's right. Yeah. One great departure from the books is the arrival of Haldia, who we saw in the first film, and the Galadrim archers, boosting their numbers considerably to still give them a fighting chance, but not so much as to lower the level of danger too much. And originally, it was Arwen who led them there, but this was changed even as late as after they'd shot footage of Liv Tyler mm-hmm. as Arwen fighting at Helm's Deep. Really? Okay. Yeah, yeah there's, yeah, there's, there's actually a few shots where you can kind of see her red cloak off in the distance. Oh, yeah. Wow. And yeah. you know, there, there's just God knows how much footage was Peter Jackson didn't have any reason to put back into these films because it's alternate stuff which didn't need to go back in. Right. And scenes which haven't really got a place in it now because you know these these films are, I think, in the way they've been restored. As you said, Adam, in the first episode, the, the restored editions, not the extended editions, these versions right. add the right amount of footage, I think. And certainly these first two films, they don't, you know, they, they, they whip along at a cracking pace, even though they're longer. The first one being 28 minutes longer, this one being 43 minutes longer. And it just, you add more footage, yet it improves the pace of the film. Yeah, it's true. It's ironic, yeah. but it's true. And then the scale of the advancing Orokai army with these shots of our heroes lined up along the deep in wall is just immense. And especially when... Just as the rain starts. God. And, yeah, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, as if things could get any worse. The rain comes. Now, is this yeah. battle in the rain a nod to Seven Samurai, maybe? I don't know. But it's just like, yeah, they're there. They're fucked. Things are going really bad. And then it starts to rain. You can hear the raindrops on the, on the armour. Yeah. And... Theoden kind of, I'm sure, does he even roll his eyes up as if to say, oh, for fuck's sake, are you kidding me? <laughs> really? You know. Rain, rain also can be, a, and, and nighttime are, are little age-old visual effects tricks. Oh, it's, it's the Ridley Scott school of <laughs> yeah. lighting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Once the battle starts, after volley after volley of arrows fails to hold them back, then the Urukai bring those big fucking ladders. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> And you know, it's just you know. In fact, you know, I've missed a bit the bit where um, that that one you know soldier fires off that arrow like accidentally, as if it's like, well, this is why we're here, lads. After all, <laughs> but what a what a you great know. grace note. I mean, it's you know what yeah. it, it is a little bit of slapstick. It's it's actor. It's performance. It's uh, storytelling that's wordless, and it's totally Jacksonian. You know, like that's mm. exactly the kind of storytelling bit he would have put into like Brain Dead or something like that. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, as, as the battle is, uh, is is underway, we cut back to Mary, Pippin, and the Ents. And I think that the real benefit of all of this intercutting is that the battle never feels like it outstays its welcome because these scenes with the Ents gives us, as a viewer, space to breathe. Mm-hmm. Mm. And, you know, it's it's been done poorly in other films, like that fantastic lightsaber duel in The Phantom Menace when it's intercut with that shitty space battle with Anakin and those dreadful scenes with the, the gun guns. And you're just like, <laughs> I, I want to go back to Darth Maul kicking ass. And But here, we cut away from the battle just at the right times and then we get dropped back in at these moments where it just takes our breath away. And then when we do cut, you know, we cut back to Helm's Deep again. Seventy! Eighty! Ninety! Twenty! Other one! Enough! 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 Enough!
this it? Is this all you can conjure, Saruman? using this breach of the deeping wall scene as an example because the sense of scale here as this wall blown blows up is just remarkable because this was a model that was being blown up there were practical elements to it all of the urukai and the galadrim archers and, and the you know the, the men and boys of helm's deep were all cg yet you've got this rubble falling and it lands with this huge crashing thud it doesn't bounce too high as if to say hey look at me i'm polystyrene it's got yeah. a weight to it it just blows me away I, every time i look at it i think no this is totally tricking my eye this looks like a giant brick wall being blown up by this huge explosion well i don't know if they uh, coined the phrase on this movie or if it was an industry term but the word i saw here was the word bigature uh, yeah, you know, and yeah, it's like, yeah. again, th this was around the time where the models were never better. Again, the, being able to carve in polystyrene, uh, this, that sort of set decoration and production design was, you know, this was never better than it was here. Just as at the same time, that model design really became a rarefied art. They were doing less and less of it going forward because you could just make completely CG t uh, tableaus. But the idea of doing miniature designs is that, you know, I always remember the, the uh, making of segment of Back to the Future Part 3, where the train that crashes is enormous. It's like, you know, yeah. it's not it's not as big as a real train, but it's also not a miniature train. And splitting the difference in scale sells all this shit so much. They learned those lessons a long time ago. So like what you see here, the, the Helm's Deep and uh, stuff like that, it, it is of an enormous scale. It would not quite dwarf a human being, but it is human scale to begin with. So when it blows up, it's got weight enough to trick the eye. But Bill, they also did a version of Helm's Deep, which was either one third or quarter scale. And when you've got that kind of causeway, that or that the, the thing that they take the battering ram up to get to the gate, yeah. the actual real model they did of that, Peter Jackson could actually crouch down and walk through the archway. It was that big, and you can actually see on-set pictures of him stood by the archway, and his head is just above the top of it. So it was that big. Yeah, it had to be big enough to get your cameras to like move in and, and yeah. through. Yeah, yeah of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. And then when we cut back to the battle after Mary tells Pippin that they won't be a Shire left if they don't, you know, make the right decision, the, the tone of the battle here led by Howard Shaw's music turns somber and it, it's at this point that Haldir is killed. 
and, and I just love the way that the film conveys once again that the elves have got this lack of experience with death as obviously they're immortal and it's again it's, it's beautiful the way that there's humor in the battle but then there's also moments of just this melancholy and somber and sadness and tragedy it's just all weaved together perfectly then none yeah. of it ever feels out of place yeah even like the competition between Gimli and Legolas you know yeah. how many they can kill uh, like it's it's silly but it's also like no that's what they would probably do <laughs> you know yeah. so. I, I, I love the last bit with, with those two with, with yeah. uh, Gimli sat on a body um, <laughs> he, he twitched you know it, it's, yeah. but it, as you say as a as a contrast to to his death, it doesn't it doesn't feel out of place. It doesn't feel forced. It feels perfectly natural, and it is it's the the weaving of the of the the different emotions that you're going through as you're watching. You're laughing one minute, and you're sort of close to tears the next. It's really right. it's really powerful. Yeah, it, it never features any of that humor which Marvel, especially in recent iterations, is has overused at, at points. And you think, oh, did you really have to insert a joke there? Yeah, you don't need a joke every time there's a, a, a down moment, you know? No, absolutely. <laughs> it's not sarcastic, is it? It's not forced or sarcastic or anything. It is, it's it's in keeping with their banter, with yeah. their their relationship, isn't it? It's, you, you believe that those two would, you know, it's the, 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 uh, the element of competition, the, the friendly competition they've got going on. And, it, and between it, their it, two it, kind of races of the dwarves and elves that they, yeah. you know, clearly have very different fighting styles, but both think theirs is superior. <laughs> to yeah. the other yeah absolutely yeah 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 because i think when you take a moment of tragedy and you then lace it with humor you're just cheapening that moment and you, you just don't need to do that here and they don't it, again it's a perfect no, balance don't. humor used when it needs to be used what do you yeah. think about 40 yeah. i think it was 42 to 41 do you think that i think they should have killed a lot more than that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. During this yeah do you know i i, I thought that that was quite a low number the, the, yeah it was lower than what i remembered Oh, Jesus, how many people have you guys killed? It's harder than it looks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's just so... I mean, even just when they're riding the horses off the causeway, they're knocking off, like, dozens of them. <laughs> I'm assuming yeah. they're dead. <laughs> so. I don't think they counted them as No, I know. Kills. It's hard to count those. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, when we cut then back to Treebeard, Pippin suggests that they head south, knowing that that way leads to Isengard. Now, this, this is Pippin growing up. And, mm -hmm. and starting to understand fully now what is at, at stake. And again, in order yeah. for his character arc in the third film and, and that of Mary's to, to mean anything, you have to have these scenes. Right. And then we briefly cut back to Frodo and Sam and Faramir. He sees that Osgiliath is under attack. And it's in this scene that you can actually see but where you've got Osgiliath in the kind of mid to foreground. And then you can see Minas Tirith in the background beyond Asgiliath. But then this amazes me. They actually digitally removed Minas Tirith from this shot in the theatrical cut because it was causing confusion with the New Line executives who were mistaking it for Helm's Deep. I yet did not it was know restored that. in, in the extended edition. Yeah. And, and yet, this is another reason why, for me, the extended editions are the, the definitive versions, the versions that everyone who loves these films should be watching. Yeah. Pippin's plan then to show Treebeard what Saruman has done to all the trees in Isengard leads to that awesome cry as he calls the trees, the Huons, again this is a bit in the extended edition, mm -hmm. to head towards Helm's Deep and help them out. And then for the Ents to march with him in one of the just most rousing scenes in the trilogy. And it was here that Tolkien's commentary on industrialization for me is most prominent. It was either Fran Walsh or Philip Bynes who said the Treebeard was Tolkien's voice really, in that Treebeard conveyed the strongest message that Tolkien stood for. And I love that you know this kind of environmental message and and yeah. the fact that it, it it's about 
Tolkien just lamenting the loss of his beautiful English countryside to industrialization and and the war machine and in World War One and World War Two. You know, Tolkien. Yeah, here was, we are, eight years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tolkien was such a um, you know he, his love of of English folkism and songs and and pipes and food and and you know naps in the afternoon and tweed jackets. There is something very you know you, what what you think of Tolkien. I think is pretty much correct in terms of what kind of guy he is. It's an old school form of Englishman. You know, there's there's a real whimsy to it. I mean, as much as he saw the horror. You know, he was an academic and he loved Englishisms. There's nothing about Anglo culture he didn't, uh, you know, love. But I think he had this romance. It was definitely a retrograde romance looking back to pastoral England and thinking that there was something else there. I mean, this is all a fantasy of what it would have been like, you know, in the days of Celts and the days of Druids, you know, when they're building henges and, and, and Cardiff's, Cardiff giants and things like that. Um, he loved all that stuff. And so, I mean, you know, I think part of it is you know, a 20th century wartime look back in, in horror. But then there's also this timeless sense that he's thinking of an, an England that he never lived through. It's a real romantic England that he lived through epic poetry and writers who were long since dead, you know, and people hand paddling across the English Channel to, to you know, to Calais and, and, and uh, you know, Dover along the way. Um, you know, that's, I, I always read that in here too. There's, in, again, not having seen much of, uh, Tolkien's actual writing, but what I've seen about the man indicates a real romance with uh, with that kind of life. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, have you read the books, Bill? Like, I... just The Hobbit. That's all. Just The Hobbit. Yeah, I, I definitely got the impression, and I think to the book's detriment, that in the Fellowship of the Ring, the books, which is split into two books, he, he takes it way too far with his kind of. Um, love of the English countryside and, and just this so there's this reams and reams of, of, of stuff that I'm thinking yeah this this needs to go this is not doing anything for the story this, <laughs> this is him just being self-indulgent and you know fans of the books are probably gonna you know hold me over the coals for this but that, I just don't think I think there's so much fat on that on those first two books uh, I do think that the books of the two towers even though the structure of the story is totally different to how it's told in the films the first book, I think, is the uh, story of Aragorn, Legolas and Gimli pursuing Merry and Pippin. And then book two of The Two Towers is entirely the story of Frodo, Sam and Gollum culminating in Shelob. Again, which was moved from The Two Towers to The Return of the King in film form. But I do think, in terms of the, 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 the more stripped down, to the point story, I think The Two Towers is definitely, in terms of the books, far better than Fellowship. Because there's so much more that ended up either getting moved to different films or just cut out entirely from the fellowship that we just, I personally don't miss. Things like Tom Bombadil and the Barrow Whites. Yeah. I mean, th- this is, again, we discussed this in the first podcast, is that there's a lot about what Walsh, Walsh, and Boyens does. I mean, and we, you know, we're not going to go into belaboring the process of the script and the creation because we covered that. It's, it's self-evident by this point. But the fact is that they made this not just a product of the 2000s, not just a product of the new millennium, not just a product of all the science fiction and fantasy that have been standing on, but they made the books a lot more metal than the books themselves were. You know, again, it's the 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 love of snacks and singing and, and, and whimsy 
you know, it's hinted at, but they really foreground a lot of that stuff you say. And I think in some ways, from what I understand, especially from what The Hobbit read like, there's a lot of napping and singing and counting and, and, and talking about bread and, and how to, the yeah. proper way to cook rabbit and all this stuff. It's like, I'm sure that's great, but it's like, that's, that's, not, as, that's not as metal as watching this, a battle scene of this magnitude. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and he, he he never described much about any battles in the books. You know, it's all kind of left to your imagination. So it's that's one aspect that Tolkien never really delved into too much. Yeah. Again, you know, this, this is where having only read the books once back in like 2003, I think. My, you know, my memory of them is now kind of clouded by the mists of time. And I think that... Yeah, you know, how much of this stuff is actually stuff in the films and, and things that isn't elaborated on in the books. And yeah, it might it might benefit me to read them again, but ah, oh, you know, I found them such a, a chore the first time around. Um, something that I, I, I was found. Saying, yeah, I, I, you've, yeah, you read them, Rich, I think, before me, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, I did. And, and I'm a big fan of, uh, of reading, and I'd always... I'd always be one of these people that would, that would kind of favour the book over the film and all this kind of nonsense. And and I just thought that because I because I hadn't read them, I waited until Return of the King had, had been released, and then I decided to you know finally going to read it, and I and I I expected to thoroughly thoroughly enjoy them, and I expected to become you know a convert to Tolkien, and and I just found it such a slog, and it's the Fellowship of the Ring. My memory is it's the Fellowship that that those first two books that exactly what you're saying now. I just found them a complete slog, and it pained me to say it, and 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 I and I didn't read anything else I, I i insisted on you know not even enjoying it evenings would go by and i'd be reading out of sheer because i was so stubborn i was going to finish those books <laughs> regardless of whether I, whether i was enjoying them and, and, and i wasn't enjoying them so I, I, for the first time in 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 20 years i, I am quite lately sort of casting an, an analyzing eye over over this film thinking Maybe now is the time to go back. Now that I've kind of got a better idea of what to expect, perhaps I might appreciate it a bit more. And and you know, twenty years older, twenty years possibly wiser, and may I may get more out of the book. Who knows? Maybe by the time we record and Return of the King, I'll be um, I'll be regaling you with how how misunderstood the book was. I, I don't know if you will, Rich. I don't know if you will. And I think, like me, you are you are very much a complete completionist. Com- what's the word? Completist. Yeah. Completist. Yeah. yeah. And. Like you, Rich, I had that same urge just once I started them to get through them. And I just remember at the end thinking, thank God that's over. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I don't ever remember, apart from, and I did really enjoy the, the middle two books, the, 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 two, the Two Towers books, one and two. But there's so many additional characters that already I've forgotten about that when I've done some reading around in prep for this, I've been reminded of. And I thought, oh, I don't need those characters because mm. a lot of them were amalgamated into characters in the films in a far more um, I think satisfying way because there's already enough characters in these films without overburdening them and a lot of the characters in the books which didn't make it to the films it just would have it would have bloated an already huge story so I think again it just points towards what we said in the first episode about the fact that this is the ultimate adaptation because it takes these you know and again i'm not taking anything away from the books they are as influential a set of books as you will find you know the most influential books on pop culture i think you're ever gonna see and i and we wouldn't have most of the high fantasy that came before these including all like i said like dungeons and dragons or any of that kind of gaming all of that all of it came from this 
Well, like we said in the first episode, only Star Wars was influenced by it, you know. Right, the, exactly. Obi-Wan being Gandalf, and there's so much that you could say, oh, yeah, that, 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 that's influenced by, by the works of Tolkien. And again, this could be me, me just being not very scholarly, not particularly a person that has read a great deal of books, but I like my stories to be a little bit more just lean and to the point. And in many ways, that sort of way of thinking has put me off some of the bigger Stephen King books because of the explicit detail he goes into, where sometimes I think, oh, do you know what? I think I'd rather just read a 200-page short story like The Shawshank Redemption or, or um, The Body that became you know, Stand By Me. Yeah, I mean, I, I started um, reading, uh, my daughter is nine now, I started reading The Hobbit to her, and that's such a beautifully tight, short book, perfect for you know her age and up. And I think uh, it's just, ironically, <laughs> it's such a well-crafted sh- short book that what turned into a bloated trilogy, whereas here we have the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings books that were a little perhaps bloated, you know, chiseled down to their core f- core features for the films. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. I, I, you know, again, I don't want to sound like I'm shitting on talking. I really do no. enjoy The Hobbit. It, it, it is a children's book, but... You know, after the languorous pace of the Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit was you know a bit more easy to digest. Yeah, you can read it much quicker. Sure. Uh, where are we? Yeah, Frodo and Sam and Gollum uh, led towards Gilead, which is now under attack, and the ring is now really taking a hold of Frodo. And the way that the sound is is drowned out as Sam is speaking to him is just so cool. And then. Sam tells Faramir the true fate of his brother and the fact that the ring drove him from his senses and Frodo then says, they're here, they've come. And then we get to see once more the Nazgul on their fell beasts. Yeah. What a great image that is in slow motion of that just dragon just flapping his wings yeah. you know, about to pounce. And then is it Faramir then that loosens off the arrow and, and hits yeah. him? And, oh, it's just as Frodo is about to put the ring on. I know. Because in many ways, the ring is kind of... Um, it's not taking a backseat in this film, but at no point does Frodo put it on because he's now too weak you know, to resist his power. Again, it's just reminding us of, of the just how close and how much on a knife edge this entire mission is. Back at Helm's Deep, now the sun is about to come up and as the Urukai are about to break in, uh, Gandalf, who's now been absent for quite a chunk of the film, makes one of the greatest re-entrances of a character with Aoma and the Rohirrim in tow. The way the music swells, and just as we think things couldn't get any more awesome, we cut to <laughs> an ant picking up a huge rock and hurling it at Isengard. Oh, that's brilliant. Isn't it? Oh, it's just like, oh, the film's peaked. No, it hasn't. <laughs> Hold my beer. I mean, the catharsis, though. You're talking about <laughs> yeah. like winding up that tension in all these tableaus as possible. You know, you watch the war machine of Isengard. Uh, just continually, you know, burning trees and making these slog monsters out of a, you know, whatever orc sperm or however the hell they make those things, <laughs> pounding out, you know, pounding out shields, and then whatever the hell's going on here, it's like, you know, they really are on a fool's errand to save this place. You know, once the bomb blows up the, the wall, uh, you know, everything's gone to shit, and so it's like it is. Granted, we know the catharsis is coming. I mean, we we know it's coming, but it it, it pays off so wonderful. The dividend is enormous. Because it's exactly as Gandalf said in that wonderful, you know, look to the east. It, it, it is exactly as he described, literally. 
he pops out in this wonderful visual. And again, credit to Weta Digital for being able to, you know, create the tableau of this hill that slopes down to the rocks and the light behind it and all these horses yeah. that go down. Oh, it almost looks like a, a an 80 degree angle straight downwards without falling off. You know, it's it is insane catharsis. You need it. Well, and I, I, I had a question about this. In the first wide shot, when Aragorn rides up on Brago and he kind of sees, we get our first shot of of Helm's Deep. Is it just me? Does the terrain of Helm's Deep kind of change throughout this battle? There's a forest right at the back of it where oh, yeah. they all run yeah. into. That hill doesn't yeah, really yeah. seem to be there. I, anyway, yeah, but not... the, the, fo the forest is the Huons. They've actually been sent there by Treebeard. Oh, so they actually physically move. They physically towards. move, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the really crazy thing here is that this entire sequence with the Ents attacking Isengard was only started about three months before the end of pre-production on the Two Towers. It was quickly storyboarded and handed to Weta for them to create, and just look what they did with it. That's wild. It's, it's yeah, it's you know, so late in the game, and for, for such a, uh, a huge effects-heavy scene involving you know, miniatures, bigatures, CG, Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd on set, it, it's just. Yeah. Yeah. It's phenomenal. And they still took the time to get it right because the, tr the tree who's on fire puts himself oh. out on the other shot. I love that uh, payoff. I love it. It's, yeah. it's a fist. Yeah, fist. Uh, it's just. And then when yeah. Treebeard says, break the dam, release the river. And then as they pull away the supports and the dam breaks, that little touch of an end throwing one of the orcs into the river. <laughs> yes. And water is always really hard to get right in terms of scale yeah. when using miniatures, but it is just totally convincing here. But I like the body language of the ants too. When they when the water's coming, they do a little like when you're in a wave, you kind of like put Steady your body yourself. you put your body weight forward, you throw yeah, just you're... a little bit, and you balance on one leg. And the ants mm. did that too. I just love the fact they're not just standing there as these like impassive things. Like they're yeah. not just trees. They're actually they got muscles and tissue and bone and stuff. Yeah, Ken's attention to detail, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's that Jim Cameron school of special effects. Guillermo del Toro did the same thing with Pacific Rim, where they just took their time to make sure that these characters have got a weight to them, they've got a character to them, and it just sells yeah. it, sells it all the better. Yeah. Then back at Osgiliath, Frodo goes to put on the ring, and Sam pulls him away, and Frodo loses it, draws his sword on Sam, and then we have one of Sean Astin's best, most moving scenes. The the scene the tales that really matter mm -hmm. mm. I mean we're going to talk a lot more about Sean Astin in but there's some good in this world oh yeah yes the shadow is only passing <sighs> here's on the back of your neck moment isn't it yeah mm -hmm. and then Faramir gives orders the Frodo Sam and Gollum are to be released having just listened to Sam's speech and knowing now what the ring did to his brother Faramir you know he's, he's got to make this choice really isn't he yeah, but at the same time, with you know Faramir doing this again, this is the payoff. This is building up Faramir's character, gives more weight the fact that you have to believe that this is a gigantic risk Faramir's taking, trusting them, that this isn't you know uh, letting these two little weirdos off into the woods with their little lizard friend to do something strange. <laughs> it's just like he actually is coughing up this thing that he thinks is 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 a tangible asset. You know, this could be Holocaust to. Um, you know Sauron, but instead he's letting it go. And you know the stakes is is that he was commissioned to do this. He thought this is going to get me back in my father's good graces. So it means more now, other than him just saying, "Okay, you guys can go." I know we went through this whole thing. It's like, sure, take it from here. Uh, yeah. I'll just assume you guys yeah. know what you're doing. Yeah. 
And then Mary and Pippin find uh, Saruman's store of food once uh, Isengard has been flooded. And uh, that's, that's another extended edition scene. And then as Faramir mm. releases Frodo and Sam and he learns that they're being led to Kirithangor, he gives Gollum a, a firm warning as to what would happen should he lead them to harm. Now, Smeagol, he, he was so close to being saved in a way, but this betrayal by Frodo when he gave him up to Faramir's men, this allows Gollum to reassert his control. But yeah. as we eventually find out in Return of the King, Smeagol is every ultimately every bit as deceitful as Sam thinks him to be. But again, you know, that's jumping ahead. But at this point in the story, before we realise that, which I think is a great rug pull in the third film, you know, that whole bit where he says, You, you promised, you promised, Smeagol. Smeagol lied. He's like, No, <laughs> yeah, fuck yeah. you. I've been, I've been in charge all along. Yeah. Well, that, you know, if you, you ask me, you know, you could make a claim that the emotional climax of the, of the three movies is when they break, uh, Sme- they, they break Gollum by kid- kidnapping him. And yeah. it's a bit, the betrayal is almost like the emotional crescendo of all three films. I mean, each of these movies has their own rising action, you know, a denouement and, and, and crescendo, et cetera, et cetera. But the entire, all the three, you know, the three, tri- the three of them as a trilogy, have one feature and i think that that is kind of it i mean not that it affects all the stories but it kind of affects the most important story so you know Gollum gets turned sort of in the middle of this one you know like when he is they throw the rope around him and they're going to kill him uh that's where you know all of a sudden Gollum is uh, back in control uh, and, and smeagol's in his thrall and whatever you know however he may act is all just deceit as payback because his spear has been broken yeah yeah and then, as as Frodo and Sam make their way, we see that you know Gollum now having now reasserted himself. He reminds Smeagol that Master has betrayed them, and it's this ending with, with Gollum having alluded to his plan of leading Frodo and Sam to her, her being Shelob, and telling the hobbits long ways to go yet. Smeagol will show you the way. Follow me. Mm-hmm. And then the camera. That's probably the worst Gollum impression I've ever done. I actually can do one. Ironically, having lost my voice uh, last week, you think I should be able to do one perfectly now, but no, I can't. What the hell? And then um, the camera pans up over the trees and rocks uh, and a mountain, and uh, we just see this view of Mordor in its full glory with Baradur, Mount Doom, the fell beasts, and, and all this lightning and fire and smoke, and all to this stunning Gollum song. Now, of the three end songs to these films, this is by far my favourite. And this ending, which is just so atmospheric and ominous. Now, I've hinted at this before on the podcast. And Rich, you know that I've thought this for years. But this is my favourite final shot of any film. Maybe my favourite ending to any film. Mm, yeah. It's just the ominous thing of we have, we have only begun to take you know a journey into into darkness and hell. And, and you know what's over that ridge of mountains there is just going to be complete just horror and it's that anticipation it's not it, it's kind of like the the same thing i love about the build up to hammer's deep the, the calm before the storm yeah it's just yeah. beautiful but it's a different it's it's different from the end of the fellowship isn't it where you feel yeah i think we said you know it, it's kind of in direct contrast to how you feel at the end of the fellowship you, you said didn't you rich that you're left with a sense of hope yeah yeah there's not much hope left at this point it's no, pretty no. much <laughs> everything that was They've gone through. Yeah, they've yeah, been we know the so Gollum's much. aim is to betray them. Yeah. We're, we're that further away now from, from you know, Aragorn, Legolas, Gimli, Gandalf. They're not in a position to come and help. We know geographically that they are elsewhere. And it's just these two hobbits and this treacherous creature who will betray them. 
and the fact that we know that he's leading them into a trap and the fact that we have just seen this desolate beautiful landscape beyond these mountains like and they haven't even got to Minas Morgul they haven't even got to Minas Morgul yet yeah that's a great scene in the next movie yes yeah, fantastic now that shot as they went up from the trees it was going to be a shot of Minas Morgul but they were like uh, we, we don't want to establish that as kind of like their final destination we want to show it to be Mordor so they skipped Minas Morgul and they're actually showing us this this full beautiful shot of, of of Mordor and it's just one of my I know it's completely artificial all done in the computer but it's just one of my favorite images in any film it's it's I agree and and the music it just it, it's so perfect and yeah it's just so melancholy and yeah. somber and sad and just the lyrics Emiliana Torini's lyrics yeah. that she's singing yeah. about well, it's telling you that congratulations you guys you 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 persevered against uh, you know unbelievable odds and you know you you managed to turn back the tide of darkness for a day your reward is more hell just a freaking right. wall of fire poured at you from a great height yeah. and sorry elijah Wood, you're gonna get your finger bit off by the end of the next one yeah. there's really no relief whatsoever <laughs> yeah. yeah your your, yeah. your, victory, your victory is more hell and more horror it's yeah. kind of like you yeah. thought the first two movies were hard <laughs> look, yeah, look at this shot yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's it guys we, we, we've pretty much recapped the events of the extended edition of the two towers now, what about improvements that the film makes over the books? We've certainly alluded to a few of them, but moving Boromir's death from the beginning of the Two Towers to the end of the Fellowship of the Ring for one, you know, one which we discussed last episode. It, I can't imagine it now being done any other way. I agree, yeah. This is the definitive version for me. This is how it how it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, moving Shelob from the, the book of the Two Towers to Return of the King. Again, if you'd stuffed Shelob into this film, it wouldn't have worked because this is already a, what are we, a three hour, 42 minute film? It ends exactly as it should, where it should, and it doesn't feel as if it overstays its welcome. Yeah, I agree. They really they really got it right. And and this film, I think, is probably up there in terms of the second installment of a trilogy it's it's probably one of the best the at least of the trilogies that i admire yeah. and and much like you know empire strikes back it follows that same formula of the first film you know you have your heroes all joining together to overcome a challenge then in the second film they're all divided it's kind of uh, and they're all on their own and and as, as a result they're all weaker right because they don't have each other to depend yeah. on so they have to kind of find their way back together in the final film and and join and become stronger again as a group it's a an easy thing to compare things to as you know to call it the empire strikes back of the right. trilogy but you've just perfectly used that example Adam, because yeah they're all scattered they, they, they're separated they haven't got that benefit of the unity of a team that you know we don't even see that often in the fellowship it, it's only really when they're all together fighting the cave troll yeah. and then the balrog and then soon after that we lose gandalf and, and it starts to fragment and the team falls apart this is them really under the hammer yep but then it causes characters like aragorn to really shine and you know even characters like mary and pippin to really dig down and, and to not be these kind of juvenile fun-loving hobbits they are now becoming men essentially yeah. right they're, they were they were, no they were long, kind of not just obsessed right, with food they? anymore <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Another change, Faramir, he's changed for the better because in the books he's pretty much an inexplicably kind of immune to the power of the ring, which for me, it just makes no sense to the law that Tolkien's established. Why is he immune to it? Because it's like Saruman says, it's impossible to resist and there are none who can. And when you have a character that goes against that, it just, yeah, it, it doesn't work. So 
credit to them for changing it. He isn't as overwhelmed as Boromir is, but I think that's more the ring playing on Boromir's, you know, kind of fears and his fallibilities as a character, whereas Faramir hasn't got those. He's a different kind of person, and therefore, because of the fact that there's less poison in him, in his soul, or less negative feeling, the ring hasn't got that to kind of amplify. Let me ask you about another uh, change to the book. And again, I'm going to ask the guys who read the book would know much better. You know, I, when is the scouring of the Shire? Is that in the, is that in the third book? Yes, yeah, it's, it's the end. It, it's the the coda, really, to the return of the king. The the idea that you're writing out, um, you, you get, uh, the fact that the theatrical version doesn't revisit. Um, you know, if you want to talk about how official things are, the theatrical version, once you see um, Saruman retreat into that doorway, that's it. That's the end of him. He doesn't recur uh, in the rest of this movie. But, you know, when you see him at the beginning of the next movie, they have the big sequence where they're bandying and Grimma Warrantong Stasm and stuff like that. So it's like his story does, in fact, end with this movie. This is, you don't get, there's no scouring of the Shire, which, um, you know, is the closing salvo of saruman's story so i don't know if that's the kind of thing it, it makes me think like well if you're gonna finish him off in this movie saruman has really nothing to do with the next film entirely whereas in the books he was completely involved he was still alive but i assume scuttling somewhere in the in the margins i don't know where else he appears other than the scouring of the shire yeah i i think changing his fate from the books it just for me works 100 percent, and the way they did it by having him die at the beginning of the, of the third film again works because I don't think I think if you upset the perfect balance the second film makes especially in the final act having a major character die I don't know it, it just doesn't work for me not in this film because I couldn't tell you how many times I've watched The Two Towers now in this extended form and I don't think there's a moment that's out of place I think you know three hours 42 minutes Jesus that's the same running time as Lawrence of Arabia yeah <laughs> It is the same running time. The thing is, I I, I wonder if, if, if Saruman had died in, in the Two Towers, that would almost be one too many victories for for our guys, you know, because it would be, we're supposed to be leaving it with this sense of foreboding and not knowing what he's going to do next or not knowing what his involvement is going to be. Just that's an extra level of unsurety uh, going forward. Whereas, you know, he's still a threat, isn't he? Uh, to, to not knowing what comes in Return of the King, he's still potentially a threat and we don't know what he's going to sort of do following the events at Isengard. Yeah, but Perhaps Richie, think, think about Think about it this way, though, Richie. It's like, you know, the, the idea that the ends come in and they flood. Isengard, it's the comeuppance of Isengard, the destruction of the war machine, yeah. the cooling of the fires. You know, like, there is a logic to them killing Saruman then. It, it, it is the conclusion to that whole thing, which has been a big tentpole. It's one third of this film is yeah, stifling true. the war machine. And, you know, essentially Ents saying, uh, you made this personal by slaughtering all my friends. I knew those trees. If in some mm. way Saruman had died here, I think actually, you know, who else gets killed? You know, none of the bad guys get killed except for lieutenants along the way. Saruman would have been a perfect death setup, you know, in uh, foreshadowing Sauron himself going, you know, there there is only him as a lieutenant in terms of a character yeah. that you could recognize. It would there would have been a logical sense to it. I, I wouldn't have hated it if it had happened at the end of this movie. I'm I'm with you what you say there, Rich, and you've No, I was gonna say I think I think if it had happened, we wouldn't be lamenting it for having happened. But but it's difficult to think how we'd improve upon perfection, isn't it? Because it it, it works in this <laughs> format. But it wouldn't it wouldn't not work if, if they done it that way, I guess. 
Well, Rich, what you've just done here a few minutes back where you've justified the decision they made and why they didn't put it at the end of the second film is, is you've just basically described in a far more eloquent way what I was trying to say. And yeah, I, I fully agree with that. And I think, yeah, we didn't need... it would Yeah, it would have been like a victory too far in a film that still has to maintain that sense of dread and foreboding and, and that mm-hmm. ominous feeling. So the film was released on December 18th, 2002. It took a final worldwide box office of $948 million, $15 million more than the whole taken by Fellowship, and it made back 10 times its estimated budget if you were to look at it as an individual film of $93 million. But it was nominated for just six Academy Awards, sound editing, visual effects, best picture, art direction and set decoration, editing and sound. It won just two Academy Awards for sound editing and visual effects, and it lost out to Chicago for Best Picture. I mean, how was it not even nominated for Best Score? Come uh, on. Yeah, that's a, a huge really? miss. I mean, what was going on back in 2002 with the Academy? I don't know. And who's talking about Chicago anymore, right? Exactly. <laughs> oh my yeah, but the, the whole thing, I, I, the, the bullshit political thing about, the, you, you knew they were saying, what, this crop of omissions and failures and lack, I mean, the nominees were one thing, but the wins were being so, you know, slight were another thing. That was the direct indicating that they said, we're going to wait for the third one, and then we're just going to gaud the third one up as a, in lieu of recognizing all three trails. Otherwise, it just would have run the table all three years. But that's just Oscar bullshit. That's the way the Academy goes about deciding these things. It's That's purely political and no judge of the quality. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, you know, no, yeah. as much right. as Return of the King made up for things with this, this record equal in Oscar Hall, of the three films, I think The Two Towers stands as the one that was the most criminally ignored when it came to that year's award season. Of the films nominated for Best Picture, were any of them really more deserving than this film? A film that more than any of those has stood the test of time, and I really do think that the Academy, in retrospect, the following year, realised how much it had neglected The Two Towers because Return of the King was showered with Oscars, all of them deserved, but there was definitely a feeling for me of the Academy trying to make up for how the first two films had been overlooked. Yeah. And look, we're still talking about this film. This film has inspired countless other filmmakers, visual effects teams. So many people have, have learned from this film. Of the other films that were nominated that year, I can't even think about what they were. It's like that's how unimportant they are right now in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you want another indicator? Uh, Chicago was produced by the Weinsteins. You know, talk about it was an award machine. It's like those guys lobbied, you know, a hope against hope that they were able to actually steer the course of voting to their films. That's essentially what Miramax did back in the day, was just create Oscar machines. And again, the combination of that, plus the idea that the Academy wasn't gonna go all out on all three movies each year it was released, they were gonna stack them up and give a bunch of honorary Oscars all for the third movie, which actually earned its own Oscars, but it was a recognition of the entire trilogy. That's perfect state-of-the-art early turn of the 2000s uh, Oscar nonsense. Yeah, I, I agree. And what's interesting, this is, we're talking about 20 years ago now, and I remember back in 1997 when it was the 20th anniversary of Star Wars, I remember thinking, wow, that's my whole life. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. And now I'm like, 20 years ago, that's that's not that long ago. It's not yeah. that yeah. So it's all, <laughs> it's all based on uh, your point of view. But, but whilst we're still on the, the subject of the Academy, let's talk about the fact that Andy Serkis was denied a nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Oh, uh, yeah. Now, it was reportedly denied on the basis that a motion capture performance wasn't seen as a true acting performance, but anyone who's seen the appendices and the behind-the-scenes footage of Just Ross Circus brought to this performance. Personally, I've always thought that a nomination was 
fully justified here because if this isn't acting, I don't know what is. Yeah, I agree. And his some of his performances in the Planet of the Apes films as well are just phenomenal. He's 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 a real actor. It just because he's not necessarily on screen, and he is in other. He he actually was very good. Uh, Bill, you and I have talked about this offline. He was he was the best part about Andor. You know, his, yeah. uh, he's, he he was great in Twenty Four Hour Party People. Michael Winterbottom. Like yeah. he had a whole career going back to the nineties when he was. Yeah. A, Hungry actor. This, this, I, I think the idea of doing mocap came up out of nowhere. I don't think he knew he was good at it. I mean, I'm <laughs> right. sure a lot of actors understood they had training at pantomime. They all do when you sort of come out of this classical English rigorous education as an actor. But what, how that in, it then goes into creating a new performing language, you know, akin to Bouteau or Kendo or, or you know, uh, these other different forms of acting. It's clowning, all the freaking clowning that comes out of Italy and that that classical training. I, it was invented on the ground and the language, the vocabulary, the grammar of that stuff. You know, he was as formative in that stuff as anybody. It's amazing. And, oh, for yeah. that, and for that reason alone, the fact that he almost invented a new type of performance art it should have warranted uh, recognition from yeah, the Academy. Yeah. And I just think the fact that we don't see it happen or use as much as it could be is because of the fact that it is just so physically and and you know mentally intensive on an actor. Yeah. You know, when an actor's on set doing that voice and, and trying to put that voice on, which must have God, you know, it must have hurt his throat and his chest so much doing that day in and day out. And, you know, just him in that <laughs> Leotard gimp suit, like crawling around in freezing cold streams. Yeah, it's, it's and, and on all fours, you know, kind of slow. You know, it's like Sean Astin and Elijah Wood weren't didn't have to do that. They got to walk around like normal pe- human beings. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that they didn't win all the the, the Academy Awards they should have is just like it's like Steve has said in the past. The Oscars are not really a good gauge of what's great or, or laudable at the time. You know, the Oscars every year should be celebrating a film from ten years ago because it's at that point where a film has earned a classic status or has been analysed to the point where people would comfortably know that it is worthy of recognition. Is Chicago? I don't think so. No. And and I think, especially 20 years ago, the Academy had this weird idea that, oh, if a film is a box office hit, then it's already getting recognition yeah. through its financial success. And so we want to honor films that are, you know, not so big, you know, and not not quite as commercially successful and you know, I, I guess I understand that point of view, which is why they changed it to ten movies so they could try to put more widely seen films in competition yeah, in for best picture. But Adam, on the other, yeah. on the antonym of that, though, what you're also suggesting, if a movie is a pop a pop success, that must be a, an indicator that it is in fact profane and base, that it lacks right. some prestige. That's not good enough to be correct a, a, an awards contender, right? That the people, right? That the the masses are too dumb to like something <laughs> of quality. <laughs> well, guys, remember the hours, because that was another one of the films nominated. Oh yeah. Yeah, we're always talking about that. And uh, <laughs> you know, even look, Roman Polanski's The Pianist, a great film. Again, we're not talking about that in the same way that we are other films of its kind. You know, right? Gangs of New York. It, it's not it's not top tier Scorsese we don't you, you don't hear about that film talked about even as much as stuff like Wolf of Wall Street I, I do think of of the five films nominated for Best Picture 
in 2003. I think The Two Towers is the one for me that stands out head and shoulders above the others. That, you know, is just one of the films worthy of Best Picture, truly worthy. Absolutely. Full stop. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times they don't think about, like, well, which film is going to be the most influential? Which one is going to inspire the most people? Yeah. Which one is going to be the most long lasting in its uh, kind of its status, right? That, they're not thinking about that. They're, they're focusing too much on the politics of, of the moment, unfortunately. Mm. So what are then, guys, your final thoughts on The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers? I'll, I'll just say that I think this film, I and mean, really all three of these films, but we, we can't forget also how important this movie and this trilogy is in launching the careers of so many of the actors that were involved, you know, whether it be Orlando Bloom, Viggo Mortensen. I mean, these were all actors that had been, well, Orlando wasn't, but many of them have had lots of credits to their, to their name, but they became stars after this. And that's important because this was not, this wasn't an all-star cast. This this wasn't a bunch of names like today. They're above the, above the title that everyone knew they weren't household names but a- after this movie i think you really started to see orlando bloom and vigo now even you know the older actors like christopher lee and and uh, ian mckellen had a huge revival in their careers after this yeah, yeah and this is the film that gave us andy circus and it gave yeah. us andy circus there you go and that's yeah. we can't forget that well i what i love about this movie is that you know this was a proof that the first one certainly was not a fluke and, you know, we knew that they were shooting all three as a gigantic, you know, waxy glob of stuff that somebody had to go through the trouble of building out of a huge years long process of just like living in a camp and, you know, guys getting tattoos with each other in this esprit de corps, you know, and they managed to make the, you know, the second movie stuck the landing of the first one, which means we had nothing to worry about the third movie at all. But it also tells you that Jackson Walsh Boyens as the creators and producers and, and Lesney and the rest of the guys Weta and Wingnut, they left everything on the field, as you say, in sport. I mean, this was the project, the passion project of a lifetime, just about the best thing they've ever done. And also, in a weird way, it augured the fact that Peter Jackson wasn't going to touch atmosphere this high ever again. I mean, barring some weird thing happening, and I'm not trying to curse Jackson's work or sort of downgrade what he's made in the time since then. But I mean, this is a lifetime project and, you know, this, this, to me, the high point is the middle chapter of this trilogy. You know, it's a sign that I don't know what the guy had left to say about filmmaking afterwards because it hasn't been nearly as wizened, esteemed, or brilliant as what these three movies have to say. Yeah. Well, this, this film, The Two Towers, possibly more than any other film, it represents for me a time in my life where I'd already gone some way down this road to becoming like a hardcore cinephile. And maybe my initial reluctance to embrace those films was the same prejudice towards fantasy that caused the academy to turn their noses up to the, the first two films but when i finally fell for them this was the one that i fell hardest for initially and for a time this may well have been my favorite film now at this point i definitely hold the first film as at least the equal of this one and that's not to take anything away from the third film which is truly a marvel of filmmaking and i can't wait to discuss that film a year from now but it was this second chapter, this this difficult second album that stands for me as one of the greatest sequels, second parts, middles to a trilogy, call it what you will, that I've ever seen. We'll possibly never see the likes of filmmaking on this level again, made with such unique economies of scale and with such a passion and talent. And put simply, on a personal level, I'm fairly sure now that The Two Towers will remain one of my top 10 favourite films ever 
for well for good it's there i think it's solidified <laughs> its place for me i i love this film as much as any other film sky mark this for when we get together in a year from now because when we do our closing you know a summation of the entire trilogy and not just the third film it's going to become even more manifest because we'll, we'll be another year into filmmaking post lord of the rings post jackson you know and whatever this weird you know environment we're in now we're you know we just recently had the rings of power so there's even more fiction set in this world coming out the idea that the atmosphere that this was created the sort of limitless blank check and apparently no adult supervision from new line i don't know how this works but it's like they both were almost self-managed in the shadow on the other side of the planet earth and they had as much money as they needed to make this entire you know gigantic vision that they had from these people who hadn't been tested they hadn't proved themselves the, the freaking frighteners and uh, fierce, you know, a uh, uh, lovely, whatever the hell the Kate Winslet movie is called. It's like that's not enough of a proof of concept for this to pop out of it. And uh, you know, the idea that they, you will never see this again, mostly because the atmosphere of filmmaking, studio filmmaking, cannot behave the same way it did in '97, '98, '99 when they were scheming to build this in the first place. It's almost like Bill, like this was so complicated and so cumbersome that no one on the studio level could understand it. Yeah. So therefore, they didn't know what to say or do to interfere and it was so far away adam it's like you can't just right. fly you can't just fly to the set you i mean i know they had reps that actually like were living there and sending daily you know communiques back to burbank or, or wherever the hell they were but it, it clearly was not enough supervision i mean it really right. there were very few adults watching what was going on but maybe that's a good thing it's a great thing yeah <laughs> oh it's, yeah yeah without doubt it's, it's, it's a great thing I can, there's there's nothing i i feel i can say that that you guys haven't already said i think the, the the one that resonates most with me was what Bill said with the truth that the first film wasn't a fluke. It stuck the land, and as you said, and with bells on, it just it it, it just took the the lightning in a bottle and and ran with it, and it doesn't skip a beat. As I said in my opening sort of uh, my opening uh, chapter about it, it's it's a beautiful beautiful film. That again, here I am a year later thinking I am desperate to watch the next part, and I managed to have swerved watching Two Towers last year. Uh, I'm, I'm going to force myself to not watch. Turn of the King now because that approaching it in isolation as best as possible again it just adds to it it adds to that the enjoyment and you're almost rediscovering it's been about five years I think since I last watched this properly and and so rich still finding things seeing things that you don't see before and I'm watching DVD copy I'm not watching Blu-ray or 4K I'm watching my extended DVD copy as I said I can't I, I can't I can't say anything that would be say it any better than what than what you three have already said it's it's it, an absolute masterpiece yeah so there we have a chance big release of breath a sigh of relief the two towers done for its 20th anniversary and the second part of our coverage of this trilogy just want to say that since our fellowship episode dropped last december we've had loads of messages from you guys and girls saying how much you've been looking forward to this particular episode and on a personal level it's been one which i've been really looking forward to and also dreading because this film means so much to me and as i know it does to you rich and bill and adam and the pressure has been very much on us to deliver an episode at least as good as the first one so we do hope uh, that you've you've enjoyed this episode a huge thanks to ian nathan the official biographer of these films and also mark odesky executive producer of 
of the trilogy for their really kind words of praise on Twitter for our fellowship episode. The response to that first episode just blew us all away, I think, didn't it? And as much as it was a hugely enjoyable conversation, I, I, I still had my doubts as to how popular The Lord of the Rings was at that point in 2021. You know, certainly before the interest in it had really been some kind of kicked up both in a positive and negative way with The Rings of Power. But yeah, you know, thank you everyone for, for your continued support and, and we do hope that we've, uh, you know, matched your expectations with this second episode. But gents, where can people find you if they want to hit you up on social media and talk about Lord of the Rings film or, or television or anything else? Uh, Adam Rakoff on Twitter, at Adam Rakoff. That's my one and only social media presence. So there you can find me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Liam Scurry. My video production content movie making stuff that I do is on YouTube at youtube.com slash amcaesar. I'm on Instagram at William Scurry. I'm on frickin' Mastodon at William Scurry. We're all just plotting the future one day at a time here, folks. <laughs> yeah, and I bet that's old me through the uh, through the site. Um, I am very much looking forward to uh, the four of us getting back together now, obviously, uh, in a coming episode to discuss Chicago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, uh, you know, and yeah, and, and the realization that if we hadn't had Richard Gere singing, we might never have had Pierce Brosnan singing in Mamma Mia. So, you know, oh. to say that, that, that the influences weren't there with Chicago, I think is pretty, it's unfair. I believe, to quote Richard Gere in Chicago, he has a mind for metal and wheels. He no longer cares for growing things. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that, that website that Rich mentioned is film89.co.uk. You can find uh, us all and our uh, relevant uh, Twitter bios at or via Film89UK on Twitter and Facebook. Um, just a massive thank you to everyone who has uh, downloaded and enjoyed our last couple of episodes, the Doctor No episode and then the Lawrence of Arabia episode, which pushed us to our highest global chart position yet on Podomatic. And we were, myself, Steve and Stephen, we were just completely blown away by the response to that. Thank you all so much. That is all for now. Unfortunately, you have got to wait another year for our deep dive into The Return of the King. But I'm sure we'll have loads of great episodes between now and then. But until then, and as far as our coverage of this amazing trilogy of films goes, we're not done yet. Come on, hobbits. Long ways to go yet. Smoother will show you the way. Follow me.
Take back the 